Hashem Hashem, Nasev and Atzliach, Shur Torah, great to be in Aventura once again, Baruch Hashem, let's get a mitzvot. Great to be in Aventura, great to see some new faces, great to run into my old friend Rabbi Cohen, Baruch Hashem from Arizona, we did a nice Shabbaton there uh, less than a year ago, a lot of itchaskut, a lot of uh, people, Baruch Hashem, got uh, some more strength to continue the journey. Uh, Baruch Hashem, some great news, we did a uh, radio interview earlier today talking about uh, the end of times, talking about the d- days of Mashiach, which anyone that looks at the news today, or newspapers, internet, radio, or anything else out there, doesn't need to be a genius to figure out that the World, world War III has already started. And uh, as Hashem would have it, we actually, uh, Sani Tzadik finished a video just a uh, week ago, but we haven't released it until yesterday. And about the end of times, a short video, a short movie, uh, one of these amazing films that uh, really gives you nice chizuk, because if you don't get a chizuk out of these movies, you're probably dead. Probably, it's probably too late for you, I can't help you anymore. Probably there's no pulse. Every one of these movies wakes me up. One of them that he did about the Holocaust, I get scared. And uh, this movie came out, Baruch Hashem, less than 24 hours ago, over 10,000 people have already watched it. And uh, as Hashem would have it, at the same time I get this call from this uh, radio station from Israel that uh, asks me about uh, talking about the end of times. Really, at the same time, we're actually launching this movie. So, Baruch Hashem, we had a nice interview earlier today. Uh, Israel, Israel News Talk. Go to IsraelNewsTalk.com and you can listen to it or you can see it on our website, BezatHashem.org or our YouTube channel, Baruch Hashem. So, for anyone interested in the subject, there's a lot of information uh, about it online, but the one thing that we try to emphasize in the movie, the one thing that we try to emphasize in the interview, is the most important part. What's going to happen? The Rambam says we're only going to know once the Mashiach is here. There's multiple options. You should look at the prophecies by Zechariah, the prophecy by Ezekiel, even the prophecies by Moshe Rabbeinu. You look at all of these prophecies. And there's multiple options. There's ways that it could come out in a good way. There's ways that it could come out in a bad way. The point is, is that we know and we understand that there's multiple options. As far as it happening in a good way, in my opinion, it's not possible anymore. And I think that's the acceptable opinion uh, amongst the sages today, just because we ran out of time. We ran out of time for it to be good. Meaning that we don't have enough time to have all of Am Yisrael do tshuva before pretty much the Mashiach comes, simply because... According to the clock, according to the sages, it's here, it's now. So unless there's some major miracle of some kind, and everybody sees some type of, uh, I don't know, have, uh, some type of near-death experience overnight, the whole country, uh, I don't think that it's possible, but I don't necessarily think that's necessarily what Hashem was telling us. He never said that everyone is going to uh, do tshuva. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, the Rambam, Ilchot Tshuva, he says that in the uh, days of Mashiach, those who survive will be saved. What do you mean those who survive? What does it mean those who survive? Those who survive means those who already did tshuva and are righteous enough to have the merit to do tshuva and to actually survive the gogu magog and therefore they're going to be okay. But specifically we learn from here that not everyone is going to survive. Not everyone is going to do tshuva. So how do we prepare ourselves? And that's one of the things that I tried to embellish in the interview today, that aside from worrying, you know, 
whether it's going to be whether Korea is Gog or America is Gog or Russia is Gog or Iran is, it doesn't really make a difference. Where the war starts is irrelevant because either way, we know that the outcome is of the war is that everyone gangs up on Israel. That's the outcome. Everybody has the same outcome. Everyone, whether it's the America starts it or Iran starts it or Korea starts it or I don't know some unknown name at this point starts it. It doesn't make a difference. Eventually, after the fight really gets heated up, according to the sages, they all decide to stop. They look at Israel and say, "Oh, you know what? It's all their fault. It's all their fault." So when you look at, you don't need to be a genius. You look at a world comprised of seven and a half billion people, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen million Jews. Let's say twenty million. Let's say twenty million. We'll be generous. And let's just say we have a few others that convert. We got to 21 million. We got to 25 million. It's still a rounding error in comparison to 7.5 billion. Meaning that there's absolutely no chance whatsoever for Am Yisrael to win anything without Hashem Yidbarach. Hashem will put us in a situation where we're going to have to make a choice. Are we with Him? Or are we with the idol worshippers? It's a simple choice. And this is one of the things that we're going to learn directly and indirectly from this next Mishnah. Mishnah Gimel Dalit uh, 3, 4 says the following. Rabbi Shimon Omer Shlosha she'achlu al shulchan echad velo amru alav divre Torah Translation, Rabbi Shimon, talking about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, says, if three have eaten at the same table, and have not spoken words of Torah. It is as if they have eaten an offering of dead idols. As it is said in the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 8, for all tables are full of vomit and filth without the omnipresent. But if three have eaten at the same table and have spoken words of Torah there, it is as if they have eaten from the table of the omnipresent, as it is says in the book of Ezekiel 41, 22, and he said to me, this is the table that is before Hashem. Okay, a little bit of a difficult Mishnah in a sense where you're trying to connect the two. What does three people having a nice dinner, some pita, some hummus, have to do with idol worship? Okay, say divrei Torah, chazaku bor. You don't say divrei Torah, it doesn't make you an idol worshiper. What, somebody that doesn't say divrei Torah is an idol worshiper? If that's the case, Allah Khaleno. We're all doomed. So we have to understand what this Mishnah means. First and foremost, we have to understand where it's coming from. Rabbi Shimon, the Gemara in Pesachim, says that anytime it says the Rabbi Shimon, it's referring to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Now, why is this so important? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was one of the Tanaim. He was also one of the major students of Rabbi Akiva. 
But Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, is loved by everyone, especially secular people. You say Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. School of Mitzvot. If you say Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai to most Sephardic women of previous generation, right away, Rabbi Mir Baranes kissed the mezuzah 500 times. They get excited, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Meir, they have candles. The whole teaching of the Zohar, where does it come from? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Chassidut, when they do all the things that, let's say, for example, the Baal Shem Tov, the Ari, all of the Ari was against it. But nonetheless, the point is that when people talk about different secret parts of the Torah, where do they get it from? Rabbi Shimon. People get excited about Rabbi Shimon. Why do they get so excited? Rabbi Shimon gave us some reasons to party. He gave us Lag Baumel. Everybody knows Lag Baumel. What do you do, Lag Baumel? In Israel you do it. In America you don't do anything, unfortunately, because you get arrested. You make a bonfire in Israel. I remember as a kid, we make the bonfire in the backyard or sometimes somewhere in the uh, big place over there. Everybody gathers wood the whole week. You throw some batatos, some uh, potatoes. You party all night. The kids, the adults, no one worries about what's going to happen tomorrow, if there's school, there's no school, nothing like that. You party all night, you eat, you drink. So this is perfect for the chilonim, for the secular people. Everybody wants to be religious that day. Everybody keeps that holiday. Some of them are even machmirim. They do it all year round. Every time they go to Tveria, every time they go to the beach, they always want to do a bonfire. Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon. So Rabbi Shimon, according to some people, gave us a reason to party. He also gave us a lot of secrets that a lot of people like. Some people don't keep Shabbat. Don't keep Tarat Mishpacha. Don't keep kosher even. Nothing. We tell Rabbi Shimon, they'll listen to you. Oh, Rabbi Shimon, it's the Zohar. Yeah, what do you say in the Zohar? They like to hear stories in the Zohar. There's a lot of mystical things about angels, about Shedim. People are very interested in mystical stuff, even if they're not religious at all. So people love Rabbi Shimon. Has all the mystical stuff. Rabbi Shimon signed off on it. That's what people think. So you read the whole Gemara. You see that mystical was day-to-day by everybody. But anyway, everyone knows this mystical book of the Zohar that most people don't even know how to read. But they think that this is something that's uh, because it's less accessible, because it's less understood, that's what they want. The basics, the most important, five books of Moses, Gemara, Mishnah, Shulchan Aruch, no, no, it's not interesting, that's for Haredim. That's for the really uh, religious people. I want the mystical stuff. You shout, you know, they want to go directly to the secret. No one wants to know the stuff, the, the, the chat. Everyone wants to go to the secret. Okay, fine. So if we're respecting and honoring Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, let's see what he says. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says the following. He says, if three people have eaten at the same table, just like Baomer, you're going to have a table. You're not going to eat on the floor. You're going to have a table, I'm assuming, or hopefully. On a day-to-day basis, you're going to have a table, you're going to eat. Or even if you don't have a table. Three people eating together. And they don't speak Tivrei Torah. 
It's as if they've eaten the offering of an idol. Now Rabbi Shimon seems like he's a little bit of kitsoni here. Seems a little extreme. Okay, I understand. I like the party part. I like the Lagba Omer. I like the mystical stuff. But Rabbi Shimon, relax already with this idol worship just because I don't speak Torah. Maybe I don't know anything. So how did Rabbi Shimon become who he is? If you look at the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page uh, 33, I believe. And um, it says that after Rabbi Shimon found out that the Romans were making Jewish people's lives more difficult, he didn't hold his opinion. He's not like today's politically correct rabbis. He says, no, no, listen. Say you like Trump. Say you like uh, Hillary Clinton. Say you like uh, Obama and Osama. Say you like whoever, because it's good for the Jews. It's good for the Jews. What do you mean it's good for the Jews? Obama wanted to kill every Jew in the world. He just didn't have the permission. What are you talking about? No, no, but it's not good. It's not good. Just befriend him. No, no, my friend. Maybe Shimon said, you're going against Torah. You're an enemy of Hashem. You're an enemy of Hashem. You're an enemy of mine. And he publicizes his, his opinion. No worries at all. But he obviously wasn't a fool. He realized that they're going to hate him. They're going to want to kill him. So he ran away. So him and his son, Rabbi Lazal, ran into the mountains and hid in a cave for 13 years. All they had with them was Torah. One set of clothes that they put on, that they wore there. The tree in the front that uh, grew carobs, which if you eat carobs even for like one time, all your teeth would break. And it was right next to a river. So they drank the water of the river. They ate the carobs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Without complaints. And the clothing, they only wore on Shabbat. What did they wear the rest of the week? Nothing. They dug themselves a hole in the ground. They went into the ground. They covered themselves in sand. So they could learn Torah. Because you can't learn Torah when you're uh, naked. So they covered themselves with sand. Why do they do this? Because they said, listen, we have to have clothing. It's in honor of Shabbat. You can't show up to Shabbat with ripped clothing. Shemachem. You got to look honorable. The queen's coming. We're going to go with the... Ripped clothing, ripped jeans to see the queen. So they said, listen, the whole week, we're going to stay inside the hole and make sure that our clothing doesn't get ruined. And that's what they did for 13 years. Their dedication to Torah was to such an extent that Chazal says that when they came out, they saw regular average Torah observant farmers there weren't chilunim back then. There weren't really many people that uh, violated Shabbat in the open because anyone that violated Shabbat would get killed. There was still a Sanhedrin. So they saw Torah observant Jews working in a farm. You know, you work, you learn. Normal. al They saw them and they said, how could they waste any time in this mundane world? How could they spend any time not learning Torah. They couldn't understand how somebody that knows that the Torah exists and spends any time at all doing anything else. They just came out of a cave with 24 hours a day. They were learning Torah. 
they got to such a high level of kedusha, learning from the angels, learning things that are beyond our comprehension, that they connected and they became completely, like, fully holy. They sanctified their own bodies, their own flesh, to such an extent that when they saw these people just living their life, they were keeping Shabbat, they were keeping kosher, they were keeping Talat Mishpachat, they were observant people, not bad people. They couldn't understand them dealing with the world the way they were, and their kedusha created a fire that was starting to burn the people. Until Hashem, moments later, came out and from Shemaim, a bat kol, a heavenly voice came out from Shemaim and said, Did you come out of the cave to destroy my world? Go back inside. And he sent them back inside. And during the next year, he lowered them. He intentionally lowered their level of Kedusha because he knew that the high level that they got to, both of them, Rabbi Elazar and his father Rabbi Shimon, was too much for this world. The same goes, by the way, for Eliyahu Navi. We mentioned Eliyahu Navi earlier today. In the, uh, the book of uh, Malachi says that um, one, what's going to be one of the big signs that the Mashiach is here, the sign's going to be there's not going to be a secret. Everyone's going to know it. What's the first thing? Aside from the war, because there's a lot of wars. Aside from bad government, there's always been bad government. Aside from promiscuity, unfortunately it's become a norm already over the last generation. What's the, what's the big sign? Eliyahu Navi is going to show up. Eliyahu Navi is going to show up. Hashem says, I'm going to send Eliyahu Navi for that, to prepare everyone for the big awesome day. The day of Hashem. Three days before Mashiach comes. So the Avi is going to do the breaking news. Breaking news, CNN, Fox, everybody at the same time, they're going to have a picture of some guy wearing what looks like Arab clothes to us today because we all wear black and white or pink or gray or this. He's this holy man. Practically, you see fire around him from the Kedusha. But he has a, probably a uh, turban on his head. He has something that uh, looks like what the Arabs look like today. And you see he's breaking news to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, time has run out. Mashiach will arrive in three days. No more excuses. No more chance to convert. No more chance to do tshuva. What you are is what you are. The three days to prepare the people that were like 50-50. Meaning he was keeping Shabbat, he was keeping the foundational mitzvot. Keeping Shabbat, keeping Talat Mishpacha, keeping kosher, learning Torah every day. But still, he liked money too much. He's still living for this world. He was still preparing for the day he was going to build his $10 million house. He was still really, really looking forward for the Mashiach not to come. Between you and me. Nobody sees. You really want the Mashiach to come? It's not gonna, you're not going to have $10 million houses to look at all day. You're not going to have promiscuity. You're not going to have women running around naked. You're not going to have all the gambling, the cheating, the corruption, the gognifish that we call normal today. You're not going to have that anymore. The truth is, most people don't want the Mashiach to come. Including from people. Including religious people. Why? They're enjoying this world. Especially if they live in America. You tell a guy, Mashiach said to come. No, what do you mean Mashiach said to come? I'm doing a $500,000 extension to my house. 
What Mashiach? Tell him to come next year. Let me at least enjoy the house for another year. I just signed a contract with AT&T. They're going to pay me $1.5 million over the next few years. Where's Mashiach? Let me enjoy the money a little bit. I just bought a McLaren. I just bought a Ferrari. I just bought a Mercedes. I'm going to enjoy the cold. Mashiach is here. I just got married. I just this. I just... Everybody's living for this world. Nobody wants the Mashiach to come. Nobody wants to. In reality, most people don't want the Mashiach to come. They're enjoying this world. Who wants the Mashiach to come? People that are struggling. People that have sickness, Hashem Yachem. People that have no money. People that are struggling financially. Marriage. Kids. People that are struggling. They want Mashiach to come. Why? Because they figured, listen... I struggled. Mashiach is going to save me. But it's not, he's not going to save you by default. He's not just because you struggled, everything's going to be okay. You also have to comply with the other part, which means that you have to fulfill what Hashem said. So what does everybody have to do? You have to open a Torah. What does Hashem say about this? Okay, this is what He says. What am I doing? Okay, I'm not doing this. i got to fix that. Okay, Hashem says, I have to eat kosher. Inside the house and outside the house. Okay, I'm not doing that. I'm only doing inside the house. So I guess it's a problem. Okay. Uh, Hashem says, late tefillin six times a week. I'm doing three, four on a good week. That's a little bit of a problem. Okay, so I got to fix that. Oh, I can't get angry so quickly. Ah, yeah, that's a problem because um, anger is the only thing I know. So you start looking at the book. And you start looking at the mirror. And you start realizing you have a problem. Mashiach is not going to help you if you arrive today. Because you're not ready. So for all of those that want Mashiach to come, the best thing you can do for yourself is prepare for him to come. For all of those who don't want him to come because you're enjoying this world, you have a bigger problem. Because you're Bechlan not ready. You don't even have the school of suffering. At least the one that suffered has some schuyot and shamayim. Has some kapat avonot. You enjoy this world so much. You got the house, you got the car, you got the girl, you got the guy, you got the kids, you got this, you got, you got everything. You join this world so much, but you're not exactly keeping all of the mitzvot. You're not exactly looking at the Sefer Torah and comparing your life to what it says. You have a bigger problem. You have a bigger problem, even if you wear a hat. Even if you have a long beard. If you're enjoying this world so much that you're actually a must, you're living for this world, you're not ready. You're not ready. This is what we have Musar lessons for. Because Musar is the only thing that's going to purify you. Just like Hashem says to the Prophet Zechariah, after the first bomb that wipes out two-thirds of the world, Hashem Elachem, says it in the book of Zechariah. I didn't say it. He said it. You have a complaint? Go to Hashem. First bomb, two-thirds of the world, Hashem Yachem is gone. But there's still going to be a third left. Hashem says, the last third, I'm going to burn them like, to, like purifying silver. Not kill them, but meaning, it's not going to be exactly peaches for them. The remaining third. They shouldn't be celebrating yet. You still have to be purified the last part. Now, if we start purifying ourselves today... Okay, you know what? This stuff is scary. Let me stop with the non-Jewish girlfriend. This stuff is scary. Let me stop with the goy boyfriend. 
Stuff is scary. Let me stop stealing. Let me stop. De- Let me start seeing what it says in the books. Start working on my character traits. Stop caring what everyone else thinks. And if anything, start feeling bad for them. Because if they're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, they're probably part of the two-thirds. If they're spending most of the day looking at cars because they're excited about buying the next car, they're probably part of the two-thirds. If they're excited about, I don't know, building houses and buildings and everything else, they're probably part of the two-thirds. Not definitely, but part probably. Not that I'm a judge or a jury, but like I said, the reality of it is that Mashiach is not coming here to fulfill your uh, financial dreams. And the Yawanavi is going to show up and he's going to tell us, clock's out, but you have three days. Three days to do, it's like the last five yards. Whatever you are right now, go for it. The people that are 50-50, you kept all the foundational mitzvot, but you still enjoy this world a little too much, right now is the time you have to choose. And according to the sages, some of these fools will choose the wrong decision. Instead of choosing to fulfill the will of Hashem, they're going to choose to fight the Mashiach. They're going to choose to go to war with him. And their name is Erev Rav. So, the big thing here is that we see Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, comes out of a cave, doesn't understand how people are spending any time whatsoever in this world. Hashem says, okay, it's too much. Go to the cave. Hashem did the same exact thing to Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi, Chazal says he's also Pinchas. Parashat Pinchas, the same one that put the spear into Zimri and Cosby, the, the Jewish leader in the Goya, when they're cohabiting, Pinchas couldn't deal with this. He saw such Chilul Hashem, took a spear, killed him in front of everyone. Chazal says Pinchas, that got blessed by Hashem, made him a Kohen Gadol, gave him a special blessing that's beyond our understanding of how significant he was. Chazal says he's Eliyahu Navi. Some say he was the Gilgul, meaning Pinchas eventually died and then became Eliyahu Navi came back as a reincarnation as Eliyahu Navi. Some say he just eventually changed his name to Eliyahu the Prophet. Elijah the Prophet, Eliyahu Navi. Either way, Eliyahu Navi got to such a high level of Kedusha that if you look at the end, when he was walking with his student Elisha, Elisha the Prophet, he says, okay, I have to go now. I have to go to Hashem. Hashem's calling me. What do you mean Hashem's calling you? Hashem is always calling you a prophet. No, 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 no. Time to go. Time to leave this world. Elisha started crying and begging him, No, Rabbi, please don't leave me. How is the world going to survive without you? You're the prophet, you're the rebuker, you're telling people the truth. Who else is going to do it? You're going to do it. No, 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 I can't do it, I can't do it. Elisha cried, he said, I'm not leaving you. Well, you have to leave me. And it got to a point where Hashem had to scare Elisha. He sent a um, carriage with horses of fire, to separate them. And then a uh, whirlwind took Eliyahu Navi to Shemaim. Meaning Eliyahu Navi didn't die a natural death like a human being, even though he was a human being. 
So Chazal asked, why did Hashem take him? If you want, if he was so amazing, just leave him here. The Avi got to a point where he was too zealous. Too zealous for this world. He says, the world is getting worse and worse. You're getting better and better. You're connected to me on such a deep level, you won't survive in this world, meaning you're going to destroy my world. Just like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And I didn't give you all this kusha so you could destroy my world. But at the same token, I can't lower you. Because I will destroy you. So, come, be one of my angels. I'll bring you back three days before the Mashiach. So now, that had this extraordinary life, he, his uh, writings are all over the Gemara. Also, anytime it mentions an anonymous source in the Midrash of Sifri, or uh, also in Michilta of, uh, of Rashbi, that's Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. But his major book, his, uh, his major writings, his major thing that he's known for is the Zohar. Zohar Kadosh, which is the basic text of the Kabbalah. Not the Kabbalah centers. That's nonsense. Talk about real Kabbalah. Now, anyone that understands just a little bit of Torah understands that unless you're fully a holy person, where everything I'm telling you right now is normal to you. It's like your normal day-to-day. It's not a darga. It's not like, oh, I have to work on myself. No work. Everything I've said to you is not even a chidush. It's nothing. It's like breathing. Unless you're at that level where everything I just said up to now is like breathing, you're not even allowed to look at the Zohar. Basic stuff like midrashim, stories in the Zohar is fine. But the real deep stuff, like the Kabbalah stuff, the mystical stuff, you have to stay away from it. It's not for you. It's not for you. It's not a big secret that there's a hospital in Arnof, specifically meant for people that went crazy studying the Zohar when they weren't prepared. I, I saw it. It's across the street from Brother Ephraim's house. It's a huge, huge area. Most of the patients are people that went crazy studying the Zohar. It's not a joke. And everyone, no, no, study the Zohar, I like the Zohar. What study the Zohar? Keep Shabbat. What study the Zohar? What do you know about the Zohar, Bechlal? So, you have to understand, Zohar is a very holy book, but it's not for everyone. The reason why is because the Zohar mentions specific names of angels. Sometimes you see brachot on people's walls. I have one in my house also. And you see all these big words. They don't make any sense whatsoever. It's in Hebrew. It's all compilation of different Hebrew letters. We have no idea what it says though. And it's a bunch of them. What it is, it's names. It's names of angels. And if you say those names, you have to be raui. You have to be prepared to say those names. Meaning you have to be a fit for the angels to accept the fact that you've called them. Because if you call them, they're coming. And if they see a chiloni, if you see somebody that's still not pure, still wastes seeds, still goes out with non-Jews, still goes out to clubs, still drinking every other night, still smokes weed like it's a good thing, they're not going to like it. And it can hurt you. So, I'm telling you, if you haven't listened to anything until now, listen to this part. Stay away from it unless you're a pure person. People like to study because it seems like it's like a uh, cool thing to do, but there's plenty of cool things in the Torah. 
So now moving on, Rabbi Shimon is telling us something that seems very, very extreme. He says, listen, if you're eating with three people, you haven't spoken Divrei Torah, your dinner is considered as if you just celebrated idol worship. How so? Anytime somebody eats by themselves, they eat bread, they have to do Birkat Amazon. Now, Shuchan Aruch says that when three people eat, three males, three males eat, they have to do Zimun. So before you read Birkat Amazon, before you read Birkat Amazon, there's a little paragraph which you only say if there is three people or more. What is it for? It's to unite the people. To unite you. Why? Because Chazal says, anytime you eat, that's considered shat milchama. It's considered a time of war. What time of war? I'm eating. I'm eating my steak with some trina and pita. What time of war? What are you talking about? Maybe some hummus too. It looks delicious. What war? I'm enjoying myself. I got some olives. got some matbucha. What war? Says you have to understand, Chazal is explaining here. Anytime you're eating, it's a war. What's a war? You're actually in danger. You're actually in danger at that moment when you're eating, and that's why Chazal says, "Don't talk." When you're eating, don't talk. It's in several gemarot. Don't talk while you're eating. Only talk after you finish. Why? Because you're going to put yourself in sakana. You could choke on the food. And Chazal actually says that the Yetzirah only comes. Some say he comes. Some say the only time he comes is Shat Sakana. Meaning the only time the Yetzirah goes and reports to Shemaim and says, Oh, hey, look, look. Look what your own is doing right now. He's eating. He's talking while he's eating. He's in danger. So he made a few sins. Remember those sins? Remember those sins that you wrote in the book? You said one day you're going to punch him? Let's go. Today's the day. He put himself in danger. Now is the day. Shat sakana. So Chazal says, when you're eating, it's considered milchama. Plus, you're actually at war. Also, if you remember, before Shabbat, it says that under three things, three times, three types of mitzvot, a woman needs to do. And if she fails at doing them, she could get Gzardin Mavit. What is it? If she makes a mistake with candles, the Shabbat candles, if she makes a mistake with Nida, right? And Chala. And when do they die? They die during pregnancy. So Chazal asks, why during pregnancy? Why not uh, any other day? It's plenty of time. Why? Chazal explains, it's because she's already in danger. The time of pregnancy is danger. Labor, danger. If there's already danger, that's exactly when the Satan, which Moshe Rabbeinu said the seven names for him, one of the names that Moshe Rabbeinu called Satan, Ra, evil. When is he coming? He's coming exactly when you're down. He's coming exactly when 
You're already in danger. That's when he reminds the, the Bedin of Shemaim. says, look, remember, last week he made this sin. Two weeks ago he made that sin. Four weeks ago he made that sin. Eight weeks ago he made this sin. A year ago he made this. Twenty-five years ago he made this. All of these things. Twenty-five years, we haven't punished them yet. Today is the day. Why didn't you come until now? Because until now he didn't put himself into danger. She didn't put herself into danger. So, Chazal is telling us, when you're eating, you're in danger. First and foremost, don't increase the danger by talking. Second, there's a way to stop the danger and there's a way to increase it. One way of stopping it is once you finish eating, say some vivre Torah. Why? Because the Satan is allergic to Torah. He can't be in the place of his Torah. You have Torah, he has to run away. That's what it says, Gemara Masechet Brachot, in several other places. Anytime you have Yetzirah coming to you, drag him to the Bet Midrash. Pull him to the Bet Midrash. Why? There's Torah there. Anytime you have Yetzirah trying to force you to do something, take you to some club, take you to watch sports, take you to go to with a woman you're not supposed to be with, do all, excuse me, all these things you're not supposed to do. Say Shema Yisrael. Remind yourself there's a God. If that doesn't work, learn some Torah. He's allergic to Torah. And even if that doesn't work, remind yourself of the day you're going to die. Why? Because the same one that's trying to encourage you to sin, after you sin, he's going to be the first one to tell on you in Shemaim. And after Shemaim decide that you put yourself in danger, in enough danger, and it's time for the judgment to come, he's also going to be the same one that's going to punish you. It's like a drug dealer. He's giving you a drug for free, getting you addicted on it, but then he takes your house because you have to, take, you have to keep buying drugs from him. That's why these wicked Rashaim drug dealers, that's what they do, many of them. They give you drugs for free. Make you like they're your friends. Interestingly enough, they never take drugs. Because they know how bad they are. If they take drugs, they wouldn't be a drug dealer. They'd already be one of the junkies. They give it to everybody else for free. Why? To get you hooked. Once they get you hooked, they got your house, your car, your family, your... They'll give, you any, they'll give them anything for it. Special place in Gainon for those people. So Rabbi Shimon is telling us here, get yourself out of danger. Because if you don't say Divrei Torah, you have yourself a serious problem. The, so Chazal says, okay, what kind of Divrei Torah can you do? So first thing first, say Birkat Amazon. Connect with the other people that ate with you. Do the zimun. Because if you don't say the Birkat Amazon, some say the Birkat Amazon is considered the Torah. Rashi says the opposite. Rashi says a lot of people rely on it to be the Divrei Torah, but it's really not. Why do some people say that uh, Birkat Amazon is Divrei Torah? Because in the Gemara, Masachet Brachot, it talks about who wrote Birkat Amazon. Why is Birkat Amazon? Consider the highest level of bracha in the entire Torah. 
more than Shkiyat Shema, more than Amidah, more than Ne'ilah in uh, Yom Kippur, more than anything. Because of Amazon, you're because of Amazon, you ate some bread today, tomorrow, next week, any day, doesn't have to be on Shabbat, doesn't have to be on Pesach, any day, average day, night, day, afternoon, whenever, you ate some bread, you do because of Amazon, it's considered the highest level tefillah in all of Judaism. Why? Because it's the only one that Hashem said to do it literally. You ate, you were satiated, bless your God, say thank you. Don't be ungrateful. Ungrateful people, Hashem hates. There's a few t- different types of people that Hashem hates, the Gemara says. One of them is someone that's ungrateful. This is part of the reason why the first thing we do when we wake up is say thank you. Thank you Hashem for bringing back my neshama. So now you ate, say thank you. It's the least you can do. I remember one time we were driving on the highway at night and uh, I got pulled over for speeding or whatever it was. And my wife, God bless her, she's pure soul. The guy pulls me over and he gives me a ticket. Now obviously in those times, before Chuva, you get tickets, the last thing on your mind is to say thank you. You want to say something else, you. You don't want to say thank you. But what do you do? The best case scenario, you shut up. So the guy gives me a ticket. It's done at 12 o'clock at night. Give me a ticket for a few hundred dollars. I know it's going to ruin my license. My wife, God bless her, she said, thank you. She tells the guy, thank you. I almost lost my mind. I'm like, what are you, why are you saying thank you to the guy? He's giving me a ticket. It's going to cost me this. It's going to do this. But that's what happens. Pure soul is pure soul. So if... My tzaddikah wife said thank you to a cop who gave me a $500 ticket. We should be able to say thank you to Hashem gave us food. Don't you think? We should say thank you to Hashem gave us our soul every day. Don't you think? We should say thank you every day, Hashem. You give me panasa. How do you know you have panasa? Your food to eat? That's panasa. Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinos, the rabbi of Rabbi Akiva, says, if someone ate today, but they're thinking about, what am I going to eat tomorrow? He says, that person has no emuna. There's no emuna. We have a lot of emuna. You go type on a computer, emuna. 50 million shiurim. Everybody wants to teach about emuna. It's nice. It's neutral. It doesn't rebuke anyone. It's nice. Oh yeah, but just believe, just believe, just believe. Even the Christians teach Emunah. They call it something else. They call it faith. Emunah is nice to hear. I'll be say it to you in one sentence. It's a test, my friend. Test your Emunah. You have one to ten. One meaning no Emunah. Ten, you have Emunah. Like real Emunah. You ate today? Yes. Are you worrying about if you're going to eat tomorrow? You're worrying about Panasat tomorrow? You're worrying about whether you're going to have the house tomorrow? You're worrying about anything tomorrow? Yeah, you know, I need to save for my 401k. I need to save for my college college plans. I need to save for yeshiva. I need to save for the ring. I need to save for the car. You work. You have no emunah. Simple. You're definitely not a 10. Definitely not a 10. Why, Why are you worried? If Hashem gave you enough food today... Why is he not going to give you tomorrow? Why? 
Are you a rasha? Are you Hitler? Even Hitler got Parnassah. Yimach Shimo Vezicho. says, David HaMelech writes in Tehilim, even a rasha that prays to Hashem and believes that Hashem will help him, Hashem helps him. Rasha. So if Hashem gave you food today, why are you worried about Yeshiva tomorrow? Why are you worrying about the car tomorrow? Why are you worrying about something that's not even here yet? The best thing is people worrying about the future. How do you know you're going to live to the future? Who says you're going to be here in five years? Who are you so confident? What, you God? What are you so planning? What are you planning the future for? You live today. You have food today. You have your car today to get to wherever you need to do. You have a house. You have a shelter. You have basic things in life. That's it. Why are you so worried about, oh no, we need to do this, we need to do that. Manage today, tomorrow Hashem Yachem. Tomorrow you manage, follow the next day, every day, take one day at a time. It's the only way life becomes manageable. Once you start thinking about the future, you already lost. You already lost. It's too big. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. It's, it's not, you can't, you know anything about the future. We have prophecy. We haven't had prophecy in 2,000 years. If you have prophecy, come on, give the shoe. What am I doing here? If you have prophecy, come give the shoe. Help me out. I need to know the future. But if you don't have prophecy, what are you worrying about the future for? What are you worrying about something you have no control over? Only thing you have control over is today. Yesterday is already gone. It's gone. Being upset about yesterday, waste of time. Nothing's going to change. Being upset about some broken relationship, broken heart, lost money... Uh, mistakes you've made, whatever, everything and anything in the past, you're worrying about it, you're upset about it, you're wasting your life, 100%. No one has ever succeeded as a result of being miserable about their past. No one. Can never be. You can never benefit out of being upset about your past. This is a great tool for the Satan. Satan reminds you, look, what are you keeping Shabbat? Last week you were Rasha. Two weeks ago you were Rasha. No, no, I've been keeping Shabbat for a month. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? Last month you were Rasha. Two months ago you were Rasha. No, no, I've been keeping Shabbat for six months now. Yeah, but six months. You've been living 30 years. Six months. What's six months and 30 years? So he reminds you of 30 years of you living Rasha. He's always going to remind you. Why? Because you're killing him. Every time you keep Shabbat, you're killing him a little more. Every time you learn Torah, you kill him a little more. Every time you do mitzvah, you kill him a little more. Every single time. Eventually, he stops dealing with you. This guy, I don't want to deal with him. It's a famous story of Rabbi Zusha. Rabbi Zusha took the Satan to school. He wanted to make sure that one of the things that he works on in his life is a ta'ava for money. The desire for money. Something, unfortunately, many people today suffer of. So, Rabbi Zusha made sure to spend all of his life learning Torah, which means that he's not going to be a multimillionaire. And the story goes that he was actually very, very poor. But one day, he needed to get some money for his daughter. To get married. So he went to his rabbi. He said, Rabbi, I need money for my daughter. To get married, I don't work. 
You think the community, somebody can help? The rabbi said, listen, you are too holy, you're too big, you're too great to waste any time collecting tzedakah. You already did your shtadlut, that said you came to me, I'll get you the money. When I have it, I'll let you know. Okay, tzedakah. Rabbi says, Rabbi says. Not like today, Rabbi says, we find a different Rabbi. So, came back to him, he gave him the money, it was a lot of money. He, on his way home, he goes into, he passes a town, and he sees the people are very, very sad there, and there's a big balagan in one of the places, so he goes and he sees maybe I could help do something. He sees this woman crying, and why is she crying? Unfortunately, she's a widow, and our only daughter is getting married, and she has no money to pay for the wedding. So Rabbi Zusha takes all the money that he has, and he gives it to her. Everybody's, wow, what a tzaddik, amazing, great. Abizusha looks around, he sees all this kavod everyone's giving him. He says, okay, well I found this money, but I need you now to give me my fee for finding this money. This is a widow, poor lady. You're taking a fee from her? In reality, it's his money. What are you taking a fee from that also? No one understood what's going on here, but everybody started yelling at him. What's... We thought you were a tzaddik, now you're a rasha. Started beating him up. Long story short, the story arrived at his rabbi's desk and he called him. He said, what happened? Money, I know is not, you didn't find the money, it's the money that I gave you. So it really wasn't her money. It was your money. You gave it to her. Why did you give it to her? He goes, oh, listen, I want to make sure that she has a wedding. Hashem showed her in my direction. I saw her. Why? Because I was supposed to have the schut to help her. To overcome my desire for money. I had to give her everything I had. Okay, fine. Great. Tzaddik. Amazing. But why did you ask for a fee? You could have just given her less money. Because no, no. I also reminded myself, I also was reminded that I had to, I had to work on my kavod too. Because once I gave her the money, everybody gave me kavod. Everybody gave me respect. Wow, what a tzaddik. He gave her the money. Amazing, amazing. And I saw, what did I see? I saw the satan himself celebrating over there, clapping. Yeah, look how tzaddik you are. Tzaddik, tzaddik. I saw myself starting to feel good about it. It feels good people clapping for you. It feels good people giving you honor. Ah, you want to give me this feeling? Dafka will do something else. And I did something that I knew that was unbearable to everyone. To such an extent that Satan ran away. This is one of the things we have to do with certain parts of our Satan. We have to find certain areas that will weaken. Certain areas that will weaken and we have to push ourselves. Overcome our own bad midot. If let's say for example, today I noticed that people have such a love for money that it's hard for them to give it. Sometimes even for themselves. I have a student, he loves money so much that it's hard for him to justify buying food. He makes, no, no, I'll make it at home. I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to be home for five hours. 
You're going to starve. Oh, no, it's okay. I'll manage. I'm like, what manage? I see you. You're, 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 you know, your face is dry. You're about to collapse any minute. Get a sandwich. Get something. Miskin. No, no, no. He wants to wait until he gets home. Okay, I've said that. I have another guy. The guy Miskin has so much money. Enormous amount of money. When he gives taka, he gives like $50. Yeah, but God bless you. Have, Shem is blessing you every month. 20, 30, 40, $50,000. $50, like me losing a quarter. What's wrong with you? What's the matter? What's wrong with these people? They like the money too much. When you like something, how are you going to give it away? If you're looking to have a lot of it, that means you like it. If you like it, how are you going to give it away? Now if Hashem blessed you with a lot of money, He blessed you with a job that's successful, He blessed you with all different things, fine. Ashrecha v'ashrech elkecha. Rabbi, Rabbi Udanasi was very, very rich. So was Rabbi Akiva, so were many, many sages. It's not a bad thing to be rich. Let's not misunderstand. It's a bad thing to like money. If you like it to such a point that it's hard for you to give, that's your test. So what do you do to give? The Rambam says is if you, if you are failing at the test of money, if you're a stingy person, if it's hard for you to give staka, instead of giving, let's say for example, you're only willing to give $100. You could give a million, but you only want to give 100 God forbid you're going to give 200 You only want to give 100 Instead of giving the 100 to one person, give it to 100 people. But that's more than 100, no? No. 100 $1 bills. Meaning in reality, you're not going to help anybody. No one is going to be helped with this $1. Like everybody pats themselves on the back, oh yeah, I gave like $5 to the homeless guy. You didn't help him, buddy. Okay, whatever, it's nice, you gave him 5 bucks, but he's not, he's not buying a house with your $5. Maybe he's going to buy a Starbucks. Maybe. Today's prices is probably not even enough. People are so proud. Oh yeah, no, but I give a, a dollar to the homeless guy every time I see him. Wow. He also finds a dollar every time he sees you. Look, it's not really that much of a big deal. He gave a dollar to the guy. Okay, it's great. You're not going to Ghanedin for giving the homeless guy a dollar. It's nice. It's like, oh. But let's rate everything where it belongs. People need to understand. Okay, there's stakan and there's like, you know, common courtesy. Like the guy, Dimitri, that used to lend me a dollar every day to buy coffee and a donut. That's common courtesy. It's the same thing like giving a dollar to the homeless guy. I was able to get a coffee. I was able to get a donut. In those days, I mean, this is many years ago, you were actually still able to get a coffee and a donut for a dollar. Today, you can't even get the coffee for a dollar. But either way, it's common courtesy. You give a dollar to a strange guy, fine, okay, great. It's nice. Don't count this as part of your serious staka. It's nice. It's called a puta. It's insignificant money. But if you have a hundred dollars that you want to give, Rambam says give it to a hundred people. Meaning give one dollar a hundred times. But if it's not going to help anybody, why even bother giving it? It's a good question, no? He says it's going to help you. It's not going to help anybody else. It's going to help you. It's going to help you get used to giving. 
Once you give one, two, three, four, five, everybody starts, you start seeing how people's reaction. You gave them, they don't know what you gave them initially. You give them a bill, people are excited. They're hopeful, maybe it's a 20. Maybe it's a 100. Maybe it's a 5, whatever, but they're excited. You give them something, you start seeing people's smiles. You start seeing people's reactions. You start sensing the feeling, finally, in your rock heart of how good it feels to give. And he says you get yourself used to giving. Once you get yourself used to giving, then you're going to have a much easier time giving real money. But until then, don't bother. Don't bother. So one of the things that is good to do is test yourself. Is it hard for you to give? If it's hard for you to give, you have a problem you have to work on. So back to the Mishnah. Rabbi Shimon is telling us, First and foremost, understand that the time of milchama, the time of your eating, you have mikatregim, you have different prosecutors going against you in Shemaim. They're trying to go against you. They're trying to convince Hashem to, this is the time. You can only, you only have one tool to stop them. What? Divrei Torah. How are you going to start? You're going to start with Birkat Amazon. The reason why is because uh, the Gemara Masechet Brachot says the first paragraph of Bikat Amazon written by Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. Everybody says, no, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote it. Prophet of all prophets. The greatest of great. Only man that ever spoke to Hashem face to face. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote this paragraph. You have an opportunity to read something that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote. Second paragraph. Yeshua ben Nun. Joshua. There's a book after the five books of Moses. First book after it is what? Book of Joshua. Dolado. Second in command to Moshe Rabbeinu after Moshe Rabbeinu died. Became the new Dolado. Let Am Yisrael to Israel. You have an opportunity to read something by Yeshua ben Nun. Second paragraph. Third paragraph. David HaMelech and Shlomo HaMelech wrote it together. David HaMelech, that's where Mashiach comes from. Shlomo HaMelech, that's where Mashiach comes from. David, Shlomo, all the way. Today you have Mashiach. You have an opportunity to read something that the great, 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 great grandfather of the Mashiach wrote himself. Last part, the tzaddikim Yavne. All the tzaddikim that ran the uh, Bedin of those days, they wrote the last part. Rachaman, where it says all the blessings. Rachaman, the, the merciful one, will do this for us, will do this for us, all the nice things. They said, listen, since we're already obligated to read what Moshe Rabbeinu wrote, since we're already obligated to read what Yeshua Benun wrote, since we're already obligated to read what David Melech and Shlomo Melech wrote, we're already obligated to do all this anyway. Might as well throw in a few blessings. Instead of just thank yous, let's throw in some requests. I need refuah shlema, I need parnasat tova, I need a good zivug, I need bracha, I need this, I need, I need, I need. All the things that someone could ever need are in that part. Notice it. If you actually understand the words of the Rachaman, the section of Rachaman, 
It's the greatest blessings in the world. All you're saying, Hashem, give me this. Hashem, give me this. Hashem's going to give me this. Hashem's going to give me that. All the wonderful things in the world. And right before the last one, where it says that we're all going to have, Be'ezat Hashem, all going to have a share in the world to come, there's a zgula to add something. Right before the last one. There's last one, and then there's Bigdol Yeshuat Malko. Right before that one is where, usually where you would say, for example, the uh, blessing for, if you have a guest. If you have a guest in your house, they usually read that one. They read that one. Now, one of the reasons why it says when there's three people doing Bikatamazon, doing Zimun, one of the reasons why Chazal says is that you get a merit for doing the Zimun is because that means that you have three people, you have a guest. But now, even more so for your day-to-day life, I'll teach you a little trick I learned from Rabbi Ephraim. This is anyone who wants Shlombite. Anybody who doesn't want Shlombite, you could leave. Anybody want Shlombite? You want Shlombite? You want Shlombite? You want Shlombite? You want Shlombite? Anybody that wants Shlombite? If you don't want Shlombite, it's fine. Okay, you want Shlombite. Okay, so let's pay attention to this. The trick in Birkat Amazon. You want Shlombite, you do this. You don't want Shlombite, I can't help you. Right before the last one. Right at the time where you're supposed to say the one for the guest, but if you don't have a guest, or even if you have a guest, if you're the one that's reading it, add a Rachaman, you're allowed to add any Rachaman that you want, in your own words, a Rachaman is going to do this, a Rachaman is going to do that, add a Rachaman blessing for your wife. Rachaman is going to bless my wife with Nachat, with Refuah Shlema, Make a nice blessing, cater to your wife. And make sure she hears it. Why? Number one, make sure realize you're thinking about her. Number two, you're giving her a blessing. Who's going to hate you after you give her a blessing? Even if you are not such a nice guy during dinner. Even if you are not such a nice guy during the afternoon. Even though you did this and you did that, somebody just gave you a blessing, their heart melts. Plus, it's very good in Shammai. So very good Sgula for Shlombait, both because it's actually really a blessing, and because it's actually, rationally speaking, it's a very good thing for you to do. So, right before the last one, do a Rachaman and do a blessing for your wife. If you have children, Bezat Hashem, you also do a blessing for them also. Rachaman will give my kids success. Ta, ta, ta. I mean, there's many blessings already in the Rachaman that are referring to everyone, but you could add something of your own uh, during that time. But a really, really, really good one is to mention it, mention your wife during that time. Uh, because again, your wife, if it's a good marriage, she cares about what you say. And if she hears you saying a blessing, who's better than you? You got it? Okay. So, Rabbi Shimon is telling us that if we do all of this, we do Birkat Amazon. It's mitzvah. We don't do it. We have a problem. The problem is that we're considering, we're considering as if we just ate the korban of an idol. Why an idol? It says when someone doesn't know how to behave, they eat... Like there's, no one's watching. 
There's actually a, a famous saying, a famous story, that uh, Aristotle was considered the father of philosophy and uh, all these atheists that live today believe in Aristotle like he was a god, even though they never read the letter that he actually wrote himself at the end of his life to his top student, Alexander the, uh, the Great, Alexander Mogdon, that he admitted that all of his work is complete nonsense. Why? Because he discovered the Torah. But he never told anybody this because he was scared they're going to kill him. Especially his top student, Alexander the Great. So now Aristotle was known that when he ate, like he ate food, he ate like an animal. Well, actually, you'd like eat like an animal. You know, this is supposed to be Mr. Civilized, Mr. Philosopher, Mr. Intellectual. Eat. One bite at a time. What was Aristotle's answer? He said, when I eat, I'm not Aristotle. So even Aristotle, who had no manners whatsoever, knew that having manners is important. And the Gemara, in Brachot, page 17b, but also in Moed Katan, I had a chidush about two years ago. First I read it in Brachot, uh, and then recently I read it again in Moed Katan to teach us something that I don't think most people understand. You know, a famous uh, thing to do, especially in Israel, is to uh, buy shawarma, buy the sandwiches. It's delicious. One of my favorite foods. Buying shawarma it's kosher, mitzvah. Any food you eat, kosher, mitzvah. Eating, mitzvah. As long as you do the blessing, bekat amazon, mitzvah. But there's one thing you can do that can turn it, and not only into not a mitzvah, but into a huge chilul Hashem. Huge. Like chilul Hashem, that's makes you considered a caliph, makes you considered like a dog in Shemaim. What is it? In the details they talk about in Gemara, Brachot, and also Moed Katan, and I believe also in uh, Smachot, it talks about the details of what happens if someone dies in your house, but you're hungry. Now you're waiting for Chavak Kadisha to come. Take the body. Whether you're a doctor, or it's a family member, or it's a friend. It's terrible, it's awful, but it's a, we still have to deal with the reality. There's a dead body in the house. But you're still hungry. You're hungry, you're a human being. So you want to eat. Sigma so says... If the person that died is next to him, he should eat in a different house. If there's a dead person in his house, go in a different house. Don't eat in that house. Why? Because a dead person is tame. And we just learned that your suda is a mitzvah. It's pure. 
And we'll learn shortly that it's actually considered like a korban, like a sacrifice in Shemaim. She says, you want to mix the two. So if you have a dead body in your house, go to a different house. Fine? You got me so far. Easy to understand. Who's going to eat next to a dead body anyway? I don't know. But this is an example we're getting here. Set up. And it shows up in the Gemara several times, which means it's important to know. Someone dies, go somewhere else. But what if you don't have somewhere else? You don't have a next door. Your next door neighbor is six miles away. Well, you're going to go travel six miles every time you want a sandwich. If you don't have another house, of your own, go to your friend's house. If you don't have a friend's house, then you make a partition. We're talking here in the days where there wasn't like uh, rooms, you know, 16 room houses. Everybody was living in a house that's on MTV cribs. You know, we're talking about in the days where the house was one room. Shemachem, the body's over here. You and the sandwich over here. You have nowhere else to go. He says, listen, you have nowhere else to go. You want to eat, you're hungry, right? You made trauma, you made betzim, you made something, fine. Put a mechitza. Put some type of partition between you. And eat on the other side. So it's as if you made another bedroom. You're as if you're in another room. Obviously, if you have another room, go to another room. But if you don't have another room, eat on the other side of the partition. You got me again? Baruch Hashem. What if you don't have something to do with partition? Eat, but face away. Body's here. You're here. No partition. Don't eat in the guy's face. It's not nice. Why? It's actually also bizayon for the men. Because even though he's dead, his neshama still sees. And you're now doing something that he can't do. It's not good. He said, okay, eat, but turn away. Eat, looking that way. And don't eat while you're reclining. I have a question. My chidush was this question. This Gemara that's mentioned no less than three times in the entire Shas, no less than three times, mentions the same thing, but never asked, why don't you just tell the guy to go outside? Forget the neighbor. Forget the other house. Forget the partition. Forget sitting down next to him. Take the shawarma. Go outside and eat the shawarma in peace. It's a good question. Anybody have an answer? <clears throat> Ma? Zakubaruch. It's better that you eat next to the dead person than you eat outside standing. Why? Chazal says something very scary about such people. Someone who eats little shawarma sandwich, walks around, he thinks he's, you know, he's enjoying a shawarma sandwich with the tchina, going all his cheek and everything, and on his shirt and everything. It's kasher. It's kosher. You're not kosher. The sandwich is kosher. You, my friend, are not kosher. You have no manners. Chazal says, you, my friend, same thing like a kelev. Where? Gemara Masechet Kiddushin, page 40b. 
You eat like that, you eat just like with no sitting down, nothing. Same thing like a dog. Dog does the same thing. And some say, Some say it's such a big sin, such a big chilul Hashem, to go around eating like that in the shuk, just standing up, we're not sitting down. Such a big sin, such a big chilul Hashem, you cannot even be a witness in any religious event. It's, in essence, almost to such an extent of Chilul Shabbat. Yeah. That, almost. Why? Chilul Hashem, you. You're a dog. We don't have dogs in the Minyan. How many people you see walking around with the Shuam all day? They don't know this. So, that was my Chidush that I found out. I asked. I asked the question. Why just tell the guy to go outside? Why don't you just tell the guy to go outside? Now we learn why. Because Hazal says it's not an option to go outside. It's better you sit next to the dead guy. So now, Rabbi Shimon continues and he says, someone who sits with three people, doesn't say the Torah, it's to such an extent that his food, instead of it being Considered like a korban, it's considered vomit and filth. Tzoah, by the way, is the filth that comes out of the body. It's waste. And vomit, you know what vomit is. And where does he get it from? He gets it from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 28. He says, For all tables are full of vomit and filth without the omnipresent. So now the next question is, obviously this is a very extreme statement. Okay, I didn't say some Divrei Torah. I didn't really say Birkat Amazon. Fine, but what are you telling me that everything I just ate, everything I just did, even though it's kosher food, badats, everything is great. You're telling me it's all of it is the equivalent of the waste that comes out of the body? No, Rabbi Shimon, I liked you with the Lag Baomer, but Relax. Rabbi Shimon is telling us something critical here. He says, when you do all of these things, as if you're acting, as if there's no God. It says, all of these tables are full of vomit and filth without the omnipresent. Bli makum. Another name for Hashem is makum. Makum means place. But in the English, the uh, more direct or precise Um, translation is omnipresent. What does omnipresent mean? There's three words in English that are tough to describe Hashem. One is omnipresent, one is omnipotent, and one is omniscient. Omniscient, if I'm pronouncing it right. Does anybody know what they mean? You've read them 500 times if you read English. So omnipresent means always present. Always there. Shem is everywhere. Everywhere. He's at the game. He's in your job. He's in your kitchen. He's on your Shulchan Shabbat. He's everywhere. Omnipotent means unlimited power. There's no limit to his power. There's nothing beyond him. Doesn't matter whether it's your Parnassah. Doesn't matter if it's a matter of miracles that you need. Doesn't matter anything. Nothing is beyond Hashem. The minute you think that Hashem is limited, 
You're kofel. You have a serious problem. Oh, I don't know where I'm going to get the money from. Wait, but we learned already. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokono said, you gave me money today? Yes. Give you food today? Yes. So what are you worried about? Give you today. Why is he not going to give you tomorrow? If you're, not, if you're already worried about tomorrow, it means you have no emunah. Which is borderline kfirah, which is actually, you see, there's ten parashot in the Torah. Ten parashot in a row we learn that Am Yisrael got punished for lack of emunah. Not idol worship. Idol worship, we already have problems in Mount Sinai. I'm talking about after. Sebo parashot, we get punished for lack of emunah. So he's saying, if you think that Hashem is limited with power, it's not the same God of the Torah. And omniscient means all-knowing. All-knowing meaning that even the stuff that's in your heart, Hashem knows. So in the interview today, they asked me, what happens to people that are in the process of converting? The process of converting. Unfortunately, today's conversion process has a lot of red tape, a lot of politics, and it's not like the old days where conversion took one day. Today's conversions can take years. I have one guy in uh, France, he just finished his conversion, Baruch Hashem, a little over 10 years. 10 years it took him to convert. Not because he didn't know, he already knew 9 years ago. 10 years ago he probably already knew enough to convert. But politics, nonsense, money, all types of things, 10 years. It's amazing how he survived. Shows he's really a serious Jew. On the other hand, you have some people, I have a student in uh, Boca Raton, before I met her, she was going through a conversion process, four and a half years. Four and a half years. What don't you mean? You have to be either mentally deficient, or there's something wrong with the Bedin. What could possibly take four and a half years? Either you want to be a Jew, you don't want to be a Jew. You want to be a Jew, no yalla. Okay, you learn a few basic things, takes a few months, takes a year. That's it, chalas, finished. But if you look at Shulchan Aruch, Alachot Gerim, the, um, the laws of converts, I believe it's the second or third alacha, it says, a Gentile comes, says I want to convert, they tell him, listen, we're persecuted, we're beat up, we're this, we're that. Right now, if you do something on Shabbat, you light fire on Shabbat, it's not a problem. Once you become a Jew, you do something on Shabbat, it's skilah, we have to kill you. Right now you can eat whatever you want. Once you convert, you have to eat only kosher. If the Gentile says, yes, yes, I want to convert, the Shulchan Aruch, not some mystical book that's far away. Shulchan Aruch means this is all of our laws we comply with until this day. says they convert them on the spot. Right that day. And they don't enforce on him big mitzvot. Meaning, doesn't matter if he knows a lot or doesn't know a lot. Don't send him to school. You want to convert? We're going to convert you now. And little by little, we're going to start teaching you mitzvot. We're going to start with the kosher and the small ones. And little by little, we're going to get to the big ones. Little by little, we're going to get to the big ones. Today, until you know all the big ones, they don't even look at you. So obviously we see that the conversion process has changed drastically. Part of it is because of fake converts that have ruined the system. Part of it is because of mistakes by different... Keilot, some of them that even to this day are anti-conversion, which is a disaster in a Chilul Hashem. 
that uh, is a, they're going to have to deal with at some point. I know that they're dealing with already in silence today, but in reality, before the Mashiach comes, the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara already tells us they're going to have to deal with it on a larger scale. Why are they going to have to deal with it on a larger scale? Because the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara, page 3b, says that there's going to be many converts before the end of times. So out of the 7.5 billion people that are in this world, apparently many of them are going to finally wake up and say, you know what? I want to convert. Am Yisrael, they have the truth. Forget Muslims, forget Christianity, forget all this other garbage that was written by people. I want the only document that was ever written by Hashem. What is it? Torah. I want to do it. What do I got to do? I want to do it. And not one, not two, not three. Millions of people are going to want to convert. Why do they want to convert? Because Hashem made a promise. Hashem made a promise at the time of Mount Sinai when He went to all of the nations and He asked them, do you want the Torah? And they said, no, what does it have? It says, you're not allowed to steal. No, no, it's not for us. You want the Torah. What does it have? He said, you're not allowed to kill. No, no, not for us. This was the leaders of the nations. But some people within those nations, they said, no, 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 yeah, yeah, we're not going to steal. We're not going to kill. We want to do it. We'll do tefillin. We'll keep kosher. We'll keep ta'ah bishmachah. We'll do whatever you say. Let us do it. I'm sorry. I can't accept you and not your nation. But I promise you that I'll bring you back in the Gilgul right before Mashiach comes. So you don't have time to waste. I'm going to bring you back in the Gilgul right before Mashiach comes. I'm going to put you in an unusual circumstance where you're going to have an unnatural desire and opportunity to convert. It's still going to be a test. Then not everybody's going to pass. But you're going to have a desire or an opportunity. It's not normal. Why a desire and an opportunity that's not normal? Because for the last 3,300 years, to be a Jew has been Mesirut Nefesh. To be a Jew meant you had to put your life on the line just to survive. People would kill you just because you were a Jew. Seventy years ago, some Hitler, even if your great-great-grandfather was Jewish, he'd kill you today. But I'm not Jewish. You're Jewish to me. I'm killing you. He decided if you're Jewish or not. Three hundred years ago, you had the Inquisitions. They decided who's Jewish or not. Leave or we kill you. Convert or we kill you. Hundreds and hundreds of years of persecution, of terror, of people having to decide, do I idol worship or do I die? Baruch Hashem, none of us have been in that situation. None of us have ever had to decide whether we're going to have to fulfill the mitzvah of Arek V'al Yavo. Arek V'al Yavo means... Die but not sin. Even though we had opportunities to fulfill the mitzvah, the one regarding idol worship, we didn't have to. No one ever said, listen, either bow to or kiss the cross or I'll kill you. Bo Hashem, nobody in this room, right? And I'm assuming nobody watching this either. In today's world, it's not politically correct to do such a thing. 
They only do it in like the Middle East, in Syrian countries where there's practically no government or the government is more corrupt than the people. They kill people just because they feel like it. Oh, convert to Islam? Yeah, yeah, I'll convert. They kill him anyway. No, no, we didn't like him anyway. Convert to Islam? No, okay, good. We have an excuse to kill him. Killed 250,000 people last year. 250,000 people died. None of you know about it. You know why? Because no one cares. No one cares. Yeah, they're far away. They're in some desert. 250,000 people died. Why? They said, I'm not going to convert. Okay, they killed them. They said, I'm going to convert. They killed them anyway. Why? Because they felt like killing. Because they're all killers. The Shaim. The Baruch Hashem, we're not in that situation. We have to thank Hashem every day. That you didn't put me in that situation. That I didn't have to fulfill. I didn't have to do it. I didn't have to decide. Because between you and me, do you really know if you're going to pass? Are you that sure of your Judaism that you're going to pass? Someone says, listen, die or bow to the cross. Bow to the cross. He didn't say come to church every Sunday. He didn't say give a speech. Say bow to the cross. And I'll give you $50,000. No, 100000 Bow to the cross. Give me 125 I'll do it. People are thinking already with money. The reality of it is that Hashem already knows what we can do and we can't do. Hashem put us in a situation where we don't have to fulfill this mitzvah. We don't have to fulfill this mitzvah. So in the days of the converts, in the days of Shuchan Aruch, someone that wants to join such a nation, somebody special. That's somebody special. That's somebody that's amazing. That's what we accepted them on the spot. You're joining the persecuted nation. But the promise that Hashem made 3,300 years ago was to bring the Goim into a day where they have an opportunity to convert when we're not exactly persecuted. Yes, there's anti-Semitism. Yes, a lot of people hate Jews. But in reality, we're not in the same situation that we were 70 years ago. Baruch Hashem. We're not in concentration camps. Baruch Hashem. Most Jews are living a decent life. Yes, there's certain areas of the world, whether it's different parts of France, different parts of the Middle East, different parts of America even, where there's more problems than others, but in reality, everybody has a choice. You can wake up and leave. You're like France, leave. Get up and leave. No one's keeping you there. You're like the Arabs trying to kill you every day? Fine, leave. Government's not forcing you to stay. You don't like America? Go to Israel. You don't like Israel? Come to America. You have an opportunity to do whatever you want. You're not forced to do anything. And they're not telling you, listen, if you leave, we're going to take everything you have. No. You can take everything you have. The, the bank from France wires to a bank from the U.S., wires to a bank from Israel. No problem. So the persecution of the past is not exactly the same thing we have to deal with today. And Hashem says, I'm going to bring the converts to that generation. And they're going to be put in a situation where they have an opportunity, it's unusual. They're going to meet somebody special. They're going to motivate them. They're going to read something special that's going to light the spark in their neshama. 
They're going to watch a certain lecture, a certain speaker, a certain movie, a certain something. It's going to change everything. And they're not going to be able to live with themselves until they change. So now, when Hashem says that we're going to have a lot of gerim, a lot of converts before the Mashiach comes, this Baruch Hashem means that all of those keilot that are anti-gerim, that are anti-converts, are going to suffer the consequences. Number one, suffering the consequences of getting punished from Shemaim for going against converts, because there's no other mitzvah that's mentioned more in the Torah than the love and protection that Hashem has for the converts. 36 times it's mentioned in the Torah how much Hashem protects and loves the convert, more than anything else. So every time you go against the convert, every time you let the sign in the front of your shul continue existing, saying, we don't welcome converts, every time you don't accept someone into your keilah, because they're a convert, or they're married to a convert, you, my friend, are doing isur deoraita. You're violating the Torah 100%. But now Hashem is going to put you in a very peculiar situation. He's going to force you to deal with them. You've been able to deal with them in a quiet way for the last 100 years, 200 years. Now you're going to have to deal with them. Now because it's days of Mashiach, is going to be many of them. And they're going to inf- infiltrate your community. That's why they come to people like me and say, Listen, I'm, I'm uh, married already to so-and-so. He's finally doing tshuva. And I see that it's the truth. I want to convert. Oh, okay, great. You want to convert? I'll try to help you. You ask them some questions, you see that it's a legitimate conversion, not because of marriage, or sometimes they just come, you know, they're single. They're not married. They want to convert. Fine. I'll help you. Where do you live? I live in so-and-so community. Oh, you should move. Why do I have to move? I've been living here for 20 years. I've been living here for 30 years. I've been living here for 5 years. Why do I have to move? Because your K-line, your community is anti-conversion. The ones that were persecuted are now persecuting. How does that make sense to anyone? The ones that used to be slaves in Egypt are now turning into masters. They're going against the others. What Torah did you learn? So now, the interesting thing is that sometimes those keilot have a few rich people. And they like their money. But the rich people sometimes make their own rules, so they marry Goim. But no one says anything. They marry Goim, they don't say anything. They marry a convert, they say everything. So now those people want to convert. I tell them, listen, you know, you realize that your community doesn't accept converts. Listen, it doesn't matter what the community accepts. We have to convert. We have to do with the will of Hashem. And it's getting to a point where people are literally being forced to deal with it. One way or another, these takanot that they made a hundred years ago are going to have to change. They're going to have to change. This is, people are going to have to wake up. This is, this, is, this is the end of days. We don't have much time. So, to go back to the Mishnah, Hashem is telling us that, just like it says here, that any time you eat without blessing, without saying Divrei Torah, you're making it as if I don't exist. To such an extent that Chazal, Tiferet Israel says, 
When you don't say Divrei Torah at the time of eating, like after you finish eating, you're treating your shulchan, you're treating your table as if it's the bathroom. Why? Because the bathroom is the only place that you're not allowed to say Divrei Torah. And that's why Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said that your shulchan, your table, is like a place that has tzoah, has human waste. Because that's the only place that you're not allowed to say Divrei Torah. אבל שלושה שאכלו על שולחן אחד ואמרו עליו דברי תורה כאילו אכלו משולחנו של מקום שנאמר וידבר אליי זה השולחן אשר לפני אדוני. He says if three people did eat from the table and did say דברי תורה then on them they say that it's like as if they've eaten from the, from the table of the omnipresent. Meaning, they treated the shulchan, they treated this table like God was there. Yeah. Why is it, why is it considered Divrei Torah? Okay, why is it? Why? What does Mayim Achronim Chova mean? What does Mayim Achronim Chova mean? What does it mean? Literally. Why is it a must? What, Satan is taking your Mayim Achronim? No. Okay, so if you're going to say it and you're going to use it, if you're going to say it and you're going to use it, that means you need to know what it means. So not to embarrass you, Chash Shalom, I just want you to, I wanted to know if you know. Okay, so first and foremost, the reason why they say Ma'im Achronim Chova is considered as if you said Divrei Torah is because Ma'im Achronim Chova is Alacha. It's considered as if you said Alacha. Now, where is the source for this? Source for this is in a Gemara where it says that in the times of the Gemara, obviously they didn't have fountains of water that's unlimited like we have, a surplus of water. So in order to... Um, clean their hands that they have a certain amount of water to clean their hands but they put it in little cups but why do they need to clean their hands what if their hands are not dirty now in those days one of the things that they would use is salt from the uh, Dead Sea salt from the Dead Sea they would, they would use to, to eat to, you know, to salt their food and so on it wasn't like today factories sacks of salt little tiny little grains they would use salt from the Dead Sea now, the, uh, the salt from the Dead Sea is very dangerous. If it goes into your eye, you can go blind. So they would eat with it, it would help them eat, it would help taste, it would help even clean their hands and so on. But at the end of the meal, there would still be some salt left on their fingers. So why do they say, that last waters are a must? They're a must, you must wash your hands at the end the end to clean off the salt because if you forget that you have salt on your fingers and you touch your eye you can lose your sight you lose your sight you can't learn Torah can't learn Torah you're considered dead some people say that it's a I haven't found the source for it yet people say that it's a that your your hands are impure 
And that's why you do Maim Achronim. I haven't found a source for it, and I've asked very reliable sources, and they haven't found a source for it either. And the reason why is because it doesn't make sense. The reason why it doesn't make sense. If you told me that my hands were impure before I ate, that's why I do the daim. that I understand. Why? You touch your body in places that you're not supposed to, uh, or touch your body just because you scratch yourself, you touch different things that you're, you know, you operate, your hands are not pure. I understand that's what we do, daim. But to say your hands are impure after you ate, how does that make any sense? How are you allowed to eat with those hands if they're not pure? You just purify them with the water. Why? It stopped working after you, after you washed it? So to say that you're purifying your hands again at the end of the meal doesn't make sense. I haven't found a source for it. I haven't found a source for it. You can say whatever they want. I haven't found a source for it. So... Maybe it's somewhere. Maybe it's in the Zohar. I don't really study the Zohar. Maybe it's there somewhere. I don't really know. All I know is that according to the Gemara, the reason why you do it is because of the salt. That's the reason why you do it. And the Gemara supersedes everything. Supersedes the Zohar, supersedes everything else. Mm-hmm. It's a Mizmor. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a Teilim, so it's definitely good. But in general, the best thing that you can do for yourself is to say Devout Torah. So now... What if somebody doesn't know Dvar Torah? Hashem made it easy for you. There are books that I mentioned last week. There are plenty of books in Hebrew, in English, in Russian, in Spanish, in whatever language you want practically, with short Dvar Torah, short little stories, short little things. Some of them are even like calendars. You know, you have the calendars and there's like a saying, there's a Mishnah on it, there's a Pirkei Avot on it. Say that. Have one in your pocket at all times. Have one in your pocket at all times. Always have something available for you to say. Because again, it's not a matter of just saying Divret Torah because you're giving everyone a lecture. It's saying Divret Torah so you're protecting your neshama. Because at the time of eating, it's a time of milchama. It's a time where the Satan is going to do everything and anything possible to bring your deen to Shemaim. So to stop him, say Divret Torah, it takes five seconds, five minutes, whatever. It takes, you're, already, you're already there. And if you already have three people to do Zimun, if everybody has to be present. It can't be like you ate together, three people ate together, and then one leaves. One is not, you're not allowed to leave. You're not allowed to leave until you do Birkat Amazon together. Now also in the Brachot, I believe it is, Rabbi Yudan says, that uh, the way that they did it, the way they used to do Birkat Amazon in those days is very different than they do Birkat Amazon today. Meaning, Birkat Amazon itself is the same. But what's different? And today, I know from the places that I've been in, for whatever reason or another, the tradition has changed, where usually people, somebody says the first few lines out loud. Everybody says, Shamaim and, uh, and so on. But then as far as the Brachot themselves, the Birkat Amazon themselves, everybody reads it to themselves. Everybody reads it to themselves. That's not the way, and then usually if, let's say for example, if there's three people or ten people, let's say in a minyan, in a, in a bit knesset, you see after shudash nishit, or anytime there's usually a meal, usually somebody reads the first few lines out loud, and then everybody reads the Bekat uh, Amazon to themselves, both Ashkenazi and Sephardic. And then usually at the end, the last few lines, they say out loud, and then they do, a, uh, if they drink wine at the end, they do the bacha for the wine out loud to get the amen from everyone. This is the way they do it today. This is not the way they do it in the Gemara. In the Gemara, Rebbe says that you pick one person 
to read it out loud for everyone. To read it out loud for everyone. And to take everyone, uh, to fulfill their mitzvah, to fulfill their, take them out of the chovah. Now, maybe I'm getting a chidush right now, possibly, that could be the reason of why they stopped it. Rebbe says that that person, only pick him if you know he loves you. If you know he wants good for you. Why? Because when he's reading Bikat Amazon, he's doing all the blessings and the thank yous to Hashem. Okay, great. You're also thinking in Hashem in your mind. But then it gets to Rachaman. The Rachaman, he starts asking for stuff for Hashem. If he loves you, then he's going to think about you when he's asking. Yes, give me Panasah, give him Panasah. Give me good zivug, give him good zivug. Give me good kids, give him good kids. Give me refuah shlema, give him refuah shlema. Everything he's thinking about you, he's thinking about everybody in the room, because he loves everyone, he's a tzaddik. But if he's a rasha... Um, make it closer, I think, to change it to the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So, the question was, is as far as uh, eating, it's... Um, and standing, it's... Uh, first of all, it's not healthy. So, for example, on Kiddush, on Yom Shishi, on uh, Friday night, you do Kiddush. When you do Kiddush, you're standing up. Right? You're standing up when you do Kiddush. Remember? You're there, right? Okay. Baruch Hashem. Do Kiddush, you're standing up. But then what happens once you drink the wine? Before you drink the wine, you got to sit down. Why? Not allowed to drink wine when you're standing up. So in general, it's not you're not supposed to stand up when you're eating unless you have no choice whatsoever. Uh, you know, then it's not necessarily like a sin. But as far as eating outside in public, that's a problem. That's a real problem. Inside your car, yeah. I mean, it's again, it's not exactly the ideal place to eat, but it's allowed. Um, but the, the main thing that Chazal talks about is eating like in front of people to such an extent that uh, some of the tzaddikim, even to this, to this day, some of like the big rabbis, they don't eat in front of people in general, ever. But I know actually one rabbi that I find him to be something amazing, Rabbi Zev from New York. I know him for 15 years maybe, almost 20 years. Not once in all those years as anyone, not myself, not anyone that I know has ever seen him eat in public, ever. And there's plenty, he runs a shul. There's food there every single day practically, especially on Shabbat. Everyone else is eating. He doesn't eat. He says, no, it's because I don't uh, this and I don't that. And people think maybe he doesn't like the food, so they bring different food. It's not because of that. It's because it's Sadiq. He doesn't eat in front of people. Eats in front of his, his family. But in front of strangers, he doesn't do. One of the reasons is, is because if you want people to listen to you, they have to give you kavod. Now, once somebody eats with you, they befriend you. Now, if you're just a regular person like you guys, it's good, you want friends. You bring people to your house, you make a mitzvah of kibud uh, ochim, uh, you bring guests to the house, it's a mitzvah. But if you're a rabbi, it's not always ideal to sit down and have uh, dinner with your students. Why? Because as soon as you sit down and have dinner with your students, they befriend you. Once they befriend you, it makes it a very big test for them to continue respecting you. I know this from experience, both in business, professional experience, and also as, as far as teaching Torah. Once people befriend you, they look at you very, very differently. Very, very differently. So, it's again, you're going to listen to a boss, but you're not always going to listen to a friend.
You're going to listen to a rabbi, but you're not always going to listen to a friend. That's just the reality. So this is, you know, Rav Zeb, he's a tzaddik. He does it. That's the real reason. Next. Okay, so some say, some say that Birkat Amazon itself, because it was written by Moshe Rabbeinu, Yeshua Benun, David Amelech, Shlomo Amelech, and the, uh, the sages from Yavne, some say that it is considered a Dvar Torah, but Rashi, which is the one that is most known uh, from everyone, says that you shouldn't rely on Birkat Amazon, because saying a Dvar Torah is so minimal, such a minimal requirement from you, that really you shouldn't live like that where you're relying on Birkat Amazon. Just say, you know, just say one line, some Mishnah that you know, some story that you know. It's not such a big deal. Meaning, to hold to it, if you want, you can, but it's like, you know, it's like working on a bridge. Is that really the best job you can get? I mean, you can't get a, like a job that you're in an office or something. Like you have to put your life at risk every day. Are you like one of those adrenaline junkies? Like, you have to get that job? Meaning, you have to play with fire? Like, maybe, maybe not. And the maybe, maybe not is a big deal. Why is it maybe, maybe not a big deal? If the sages that said that it's Dvar Torah are right, you're fine. You're fine. But if Rashi is right, which Rashi is everywhere, he's in the Gemara, he's in five books of Moses, he's in Tanakh, there's no place you don't see Rashi. If Rashi is right, and it's not really considered Dvar Torah, then your Shulchan, your table, just turned into idol worship. So it's either lava or Ganeden. Why play with it? Just say Dvar Torah, it's much easier. What does it take? A minute? You hate the Torah that much that you can't remember one thing, you can't learn one thing, you can't put a book in your pocket? Torah is so easy today, you have it in your phone. Everybody plays on their phone. Go on one of my WhatsApp groups, there's a million people already. Baruch Hashem. In all these groups, we have over 8,000 people in our Facebook group. We have over 6,000 people on the page. We have hundreds and hundreds of people on all over WhatsApp. If you want Torah, it's two seconds away from you. Click on one of the million things that we send out every day, that Tzadik Vimesh sends, or Emmanuel sends, or Sunny does, or everybody does. All day we send out Torah. Click on one of them. Listen to the shield for five minutes. That's it, you're finished. Torah. If what? You definitely have to say, you should definitely say, you should definitely add Torah to your table, even if you're eating by yourself. But it's not as bad as if you, do, if you uh, don't do it with three people. It's not good to not have Divret Torah, but it's not as, a, um, it's not as much of a uh, horror show. Uh, when when you do it with uh, what's when you do it by yourself, so again it's it's easy enough. Hashem made Hashem knew how weak we are, so He made Torah easy and accessible for us. It's a YouTube video away. It's a click away. It's a WhatsApp away. And don't tell me you don't play with your phone like everybody else because we're all addicted to it. So if you're addicted to it, instead of watching the cops saving the uh, the ducks in the middle of the highway, watch a shield Torah for two minutes. Instead of playing Pokemon. Watch Shul Torah for a few minutes. If you don't have a phone, get one of these small books. There's plenty of small books with Divrei Musa. You put it in your pocket. You finish eating. 
wipe off the trina and read two verses. Read two halachot. What does it take? Two minutes? Five minutes? Again, if you agree that the sages, the prophets, the five books of Moses, everything is leading us towards a time that's the end of days. Then that means that you agree with the fact that you have to prepare yourself. That means that you have you agree with the fact that you have to make certain changes. Everybody has to make changes. I have to make changes. You have to make changes. Everybody has to make changes. By the way, one of the biggest beneficiaries of all these shiurim is me. Why? Because you forced me to learn Musar. So you guys think I'm only I'm here telling people, oh, do this, do this, do this, do this. Like I do everything. No, I'm telling to myself most of the time. I have to also do tshuva. But the point here is that if we all agree, we're all on the same page, that we have to change, we have to improve. Then how are we improving if we can't give Hashem two minutes of our day? We expect Hashem to give us 10,000, 20,000 a month. We can't give Him two minutes a day when we eat. We can't give Him an hour a day to learn. Half hour in the morning, half hour at night, an hour in the morning, hour at night. This is, it's, it's small things like this that are going to decide whether you go to Gan Eden or Gehenom. And this leads me to one last thing that I can mention. It doesn't have much to do necessarily with the, uh, with the Mishnah. But it has to do with the whole aspect of Arek Ve'al Yavo. You know, before we said that one of the greatest benefits of being a Jew today is that we don't necessarily have to make the same difficult choice that our forefathers and even some of our grandparents had to make, which is either die and not sin. Meaning, they either die or idol worship. But there are three things, the Torah says, there are three things that you rather die, you're better off dying than making the sin. Three things, not just one. One is obviously if someone comes to Yashem HaChem, like in the old days, they say either idol worship or die, say Jump off the bridge. Help them out already. No problem. Better off to die than to worship an idol. Better off die than going into a church. Better off die than being forced to read the uh, New Testament. Better off. Better off die than going to one of these uh, mountains with uh, Buddha statues on it. That's all idol worship. That's one. That's understandable. Baruch Hashem, none of us are put to that test on a daily basis. Second one is murder. So if they tell you, kill this person or die, your blood is not any better than his. Your blood is not any better than his, you die. Don't kill him. It's not like the movie Gladiator. So, no, no, it's survival of the fittest, the gladiator is going to win, everybody cheers, yay, yay, he killed 500 people. No, no, you're not a tzaddik, you're a shah. You should die. Somebody says die or, uh, or uh, kill somebody else, you die. Why are you killing him? Who are you to kill him? Unless he's trying to kill you. But they tell you, oh, either kill this innocent person, innocent Jew, or you die. Why? But, Baruch Hashem, also, not a test that we're giving. What's the test that we are giving? Make a sex crime or die. This is the test that every single one of us has been given more than once in our life. And are continuing to be given on a daily basis. Because most of us, when we think about Gilui Arayot, we're thinking about, oh, the sex crime of, that's, of course we're not going to do. 
Gilu'i Arayot, most people understand it. Gilu'i Arayot is, you're not allowed to incest. A person's not allowed with their mother, their father, their sister, their brother. Not allowed. Of course, it's no normal person wants to do that. Obviously, there's millions of people that are not normal, but they're part of the two-thirds anyway. So we don't have to worry about them. We're talking about the normal people in the world. Normal people in the world don't want to be with their mother or their father or their brother or their sister or their aunt. They don't want to be with them. And even if they do, they can overcome it because they're humans. They're not lions. They're human beings. They control their desires and, you know, get married somewhere else. But that is only the beginning of Gilu'i Arayot. Arayot in reality means sex crime. So what's a sex crime? Sex crime is to be with anyone you're not allowed to be with. Meaning, either be with this non-Jewish woman, or die. Torah says, die. Be with this Jewish woman. That's not your wife. Or die. Die. She's nida. Be with your own wife when she's nida. She has a period. Or die. Die. Now we're getting closer to home. Because this is a test that every husband has. All these husbands that think they're heroes. Oh, no, no, I keep kosher, I keep this, I keep this. But they don't want their wife to have a peace and quiet for half the month. They want to be with her all the time. You have a serious problem. So this is getting closer to home. Now even more so, this is affecting a certain part of the nation. What's the part that's affecting everyone? Anyone know? Watching your eyes and thoughts. Close. Close. No, no, you're close. Getting there, you're getting there. You're getting there. What? Wasting seeds, definitely one of them. Wasting seed, die not sin. What's the big thing that comes before the wasting seed? It close, but when? When does it happen? I'll just save you the time. Make his dancing. Makes dancing, all these clubs, all these weddings, all these bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, sweet 16, whatever other reason people have to party. All of these events that have these mixed dancing, according to our Torah, that's all arayot, that's all sex crimes. Being in a, in a mixed dancing party is a sex crime to such an extent. It's the same thing as going to the beach and seeing everybody practically naked. You go to the beach, people are not exactly wearing suits in the beach. They're wearing bikinis. Even the little babies are wearing bikinis. People think that it's cute for a little three-year-old kid to wear a bikini. It's not cute, my friend. It's not. According to the Torah, it's not cute at all. It's considered 100% gilu'i arayot. It's considered to such, such a big sin to go to one of these parties. Then definitely have them. Die and not sin. That's what it means. To such an extent. Why? Why die not sin? Because every single second you're in that party, you're creating a demon. Now, let me explain to you guys about these demons. Something small so you understand. The Chafetz Chaim, one time, was visiting a new town. 
And the rabbi, who was also one of the big giants of the generation, of the Keilah, saw the Chafetz Chaim was looking for something. He says, Kvodav, can I help you? He goes, yeah, yeah, can you give me please a piece of paper? I have a chidush, I want to write it. If you have a chidush in your head, you really should write it. You don't want to lose it. It's your chidush. When someone knows what a chidush is, as a chidush, it's very exciting. It's very, very exciting. You definitely don't want to lose it. It's mamas like going to Gehenom. Losing a chidush, an insight, it's mamas like a miniature Gehenom. Especially somebody in the level of Chafetz Chaim. Just give me a piece of paper. I want to write my chidush. Goes, gets a piece of paper. It's not like today where everybody has stacks and stacks of paper. In those days it was hard to get paper. But anyway, give him a piece of paper. Chafetz Chaim takes a few liras out of his pocket and he gives it to him. No, no, it's Kodagav. It's okay, you don't have to give No, no, he goes, I made it a law for myself, a habit of, for myself, not to take anything for free from anyone. And the reason why is because I know that in my position people want to give me stuff for free. But sometimes they really don't want to. Sometimes you ask a person, hey, listen, you have five bucks, and they don't really want to give it to you, but they give it to you because they feel uncomfortable. You have a piece of paper, you have a pen, they give it to you, but they don't really want to. No, I don't want you to use my pen. You have an extra cigarette. This is a very, very common thing. Smokers, for some reason, always think that other smokers are the most generous people in the world. They don't want to buy a cigarette for themselves, but they want to buy it from everybody else. I'll give, I'll give you 25 cents for a cigarette. Yeah, but it's $1.50 for your cigarette today. I'm losing money on you. I'd rather give it to you for free. But this is a thing. You ask people for a cigarette, no one really wants to give a cigarette. Why? Because then you have to go buy another pack. You go buy a pack. Point is, is that sometimes people give you stuff, not because they want to give it to you, but because they feel uncomfortable. Chafetz Chaim says this is a problem. Because if he's giving it to me because he feels not that he's uncomfortable, that means that in Shamaim I'm considered as if I did gezin, as if I stole it from him. And from that sin of gezel, there's going to be an angel, a demon created. And that demon from that sin of gezel is strong enough to destroy your entire city. So I don't want to destroy your city. So can you please take my fuel, Lirot? Do you understand what's going on here? So now, people have no idea that every single one of your actions has a reaction. Just because you don't see it, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. When someone drives on Shabbat, he doesn't see anything bad, doesn't see any accidents, he's driving his Bentley, he's driving his Ferrari, he's driving his Mercedes-Benz, or he's driving his little Tustus, doesn't make a difference. He's driving, he's enjoying, he has nice weather. No problem. What he doesn't realize is that every single time he presses the gas pedal, he's violating Shabbat a minimum of 6,000 times. One of my students that's an engineer did research. He knows about cars. I know nothing about them. But he knows, he says, it's a minimum of 6,000 fires. Every time you press the gas, going X amount of uh, speed. He has a whole chart that he made. So meaning every time you press the gas, we're not talking about driving the whole way. You press the gas once, 6,000 fires. That's 6,000 Chilu Shabbat. 
You drove for 15 minutes, you didn't press the gas once, you pressed it more than once, you pressed it many times. You stop, you go, you go 90 miles an hour, it increases it. Now he doesn't see this, the guy with the two stews. He doesn't see it, the guy with the little Mercedes. He's enjoying the air conditioner, he's enjoying the music, he's enjoying all these things. What he doesn't realize is that every time he does Chilul Shabbat, there's a spiritual atomic bomb going off in his personal olamaba. That's why in the Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin, page 90, it says, Kol Yisrael yesh lehem chelik lo Everyone in Israel has a chelik lo And on Shabbat, we read this. The problem is that on Shabbat, on the Sidur, they only put that part. Kol Yisrael yesh lehem chelik lo But if you read the continuation of that Mishnah, in Maseret Sanhedrin, from page 90 all the way to 98, 90 to 90, 90, the first line says, All, is, all of Israel has a share of the world to come. That's the first line. The remaining eight pages, which is really 16, talks about all of the people that don't have a share of the world to come. Chilul Shabbat, Chilul Hashem, someone that went with Eshet Ish, all of these sinners that don't have. Meaning, yes, all of the ones that are righteous, because they use a verse from Isaiah. He says, all of you that are righteous, filling the fulfilling the verse, that all of you are righteous, you have a share of the world to come. Meaning, as long as you're tzaddikim, you have a share of the world to come. And these are the following that do not have a share of the world to come, and it lists all of the sins that someone makes in order to lose their share of the world to come. Now these people don't know, they go to Beknesset with their car sometimes, on Shabbat, they think they have a share of the world to come, they think they did a mitzvah. They even consider themselves part of the Minyan. Even though Chazal says they're not considered part of Minyan. But no one tells them. The rabbi doesn't tell them because then he won't get staka. So they have to read. They have to read Mishnah. They have to read Gemara. They have to read Alachot. They have to learn for themselves. They can't just rely on a once a week lecture. And they'll see that in this Torah that we have, that we got from Shemaim, has rules. Not everyone has a free ride, my friend. No one has a free ride. There are rules. If you're a tzaddik, meaning you comply with the Torah, you're good to go. You're good. You have nothing to worry about. Can anyone here raise their hand and say, I'm a tzaddik? Can anyone in this generation raise their hand and say, I'm a tzaddik? Including all the rabbis. As a matter of fact, the bigger the rabbi, the less likely he is to even think about, am I a tzaddik? I'll give you a story I heard just this week, just from seeing it. I asked you about Ephraim. Ephraim, God, God bless him, he's going through a test right now. They have to move. And uh, part of the worst part of moving is you have to box all your stuff, but they haven't found a house yet, so his whole house is in boxes. But I see, you know, in his, light, in his room, he has in his house, he has, Baruch Hashem, over 3,000 books. And I see that just the one, the... Behind him is full, but everything else I see, because we talk on Skype, everything else around him is empty. But I see the one that's behind him is full. I'm like, oh, okay, you, have to, you still have to pack the, uh, the books behind you. He goes, no, 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 I'm not touching those right now. I'm like, why? He goes, you have to pack. He goes, no, no, I can't be left without my Torah right next to me. I'll become an Amaretz. I'll become an ignorant. Meaning, with all the Torah that he knows, God bless him, he's written over 30 books. 
He's finished the shots countless times. In my opinion, he's going to be one of the G'dolei Adol. He's something special. I've never met anybody, and I don't think there is anybody that knows as much as him, at least not in his age, or anywhere near his age. He's, and it's not because I know him. Anyone that talks to him gets the same impression. There's not, I've never asked him a question, he didn't know it. And Baruch Hashem, I get a lot of questions. Not just my questions, all of my students' questions. It's amazing how much knowledge he has, Baruch Hashem. And he spends every minute that he has learning Torah. He's mamash dedicating his life to Torah to a level that I could only wish I had. And he's telling me, with all of the books that he read, all the books that he wrote, all the things that he knows, he's scared not to be next to all of his Sifrit Torah, or at least some of them that are easily accessible. Why? Not because he's scared that somebody's going to take them. Not because he's scared that somebody's going to steal them. He said, I'm scared that they're not going to be easily accessible to me because maybe I'll forget they even exist and I'll become an Amaaret, I'll become an ignorant. We have to fight the Satan for three hours just to learn for an hour. Him, he's scared to be not, not, not to be next to his books. You understand? So the more somebody knows, the, more, the less likely they are to even think of themselves as a tzaddik. But the key here is that we have ourselves opportunities to buy ourselves the next world or destroy it. Every time somebody drives on Shabbat, they are setting off atomic bombs in their ulama that's one of the things we have to understand. That's why when it says, these are the following that don't have share of the world to come, it is it means that yes, they have a share of the world to come, but when they show up there, they're going to see just explosions. Say, what happened to my Allah Abba? Yeah, you ruined it. You destroyed it. Yeah, you had a share, but it's in pieces. Yeah, what do you mean it's in pieces? It's all fire. He goes, yes, that's what you're going to be in for the next 50 million years. All the bombs you set off. You drove on Shabbat, you ate non-kosher, you went to mixed weddings, you went with uh, you know, people you're not supposed to, you stole, you did this, you did this. Every time you did it, yeah, maybe you didn't see it in front of your eyes, but it happened. It happened. And that's the thing that we all have to understand. Every single thing you do, there is a consequence. Some of them you see, Hashem Hashem shows it to you in this world. But not always. Not always. So this is the thing that we also learn from this Mishnah, where just for eating, something we all do every day, simple meal, the same Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that everybody celebrates, and they have songs for him, Bar Yochai, and everybody dances and enjoys and everything else, this same Tana. This same, same sage is telling you, before you even say my name, before you even think my name, before you even say the Zohar, learn just this Mishnah. Basic Mishnah, learn how to eat. I'm not saying learn the entire Shas, learn the entire this, the entire that. Learn how to eat, Ribbono Olam. Learn how to eat. Once you know how to eat, then we can talk. Then you could say, oh, Rabbi Shimon this, mention my name. But learn how to eat. Why? Because every time you eat, Hashem is watching. No more questions. What was my Which one was it? I forgot.
you would just start to say the Kevin Shalom. And you ask the question and you uh, what was I saying? Anybody remember? It's about why we don't say the Oh, yeah. Ah! Okay, so. Now, in the Gemara Brechot, Rabbi, Rabbi Yudana Si, says that in those days, they would say Birkat Amazon differently than we do today. Today, the tradition is that one person says the first couple of lines out loud and then reads everything quietly and everyone reads their own Birkatamazon quietly until they get to the end where the person that originally initiated the Birkatamazon says maybe the last one or two lines out loud and maybe does a uh, bracha for the wine um, and everyone says amen. That's the way we do it today. This is not the way that our forefathers did it, especially not the ones from 1500 years ago uh, or more, where Rebbe says in the Gemara that the way you do it actually is that one person, one person does it for everyone. One person reads the Birkat Amazon out loud for everyone, not quietly. One person reads it for everyone, and one person thinks of everyone when he's, uh, when he's uh, doing the prayer. Now the reason why maybe possibly that this changed is because Rebbe also says that uh, the person that's going to read your Bikat Amazon for you, if you're let's say in a meal, there's 10, 20, 30 people, or even just 3 people, there's one person reading Bikat Amazon, you have to make sure that this person is a tzaddik. Because if it's a tzaddik, then you know he loves everyone. He loves, even the people he doesn't like, he still loves them. There's many people that are very, very difficult to like, but he loves them. Meaning, you still do everything that he can to help them. You may not like them as a person, but you still do everything he can to help them. So if he's a tzaddik, that's the one. Why? Because when he reads Bikat Amazon, first of all, he says, thank you to Hashem. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But then it gets to the end, and he starts asking for stuff. Haman uh, is going to bless us, Haman uh, is going to give us Rifuah Shlemar, Haman uh, is going to give us Panasat Tova, Haman uh, is going to give us uh, all these different things. Now if he loves you, he's going to think about you the whole time. Also, he's going to think about himself, but he's also going to think about you. But if he's an egotistical person, if he's a selfish person, then what's going to happen? The only person he's going to think about is himself. So when he says Bikat Amazon, you're relying on him, but in reality, he's thinking, no, no, give me the Pamasa, not them, I don't want them to have as much. Give me the Bracha, I don't want the competition. I don't want my competition to win. You know how some people, they get upset because a competitor opened a store down the street? These people have Amunah problems. So he says, no, no, don't give my competition blessing. No, don't give them kids, I, have, uh, I want my kids to be the best. Don't give them this, don't give them this. He's thinking about himself. So if he's a hasha, don't have him say Bikat Amazon. Why? It's not, where, it's not helping you. It's hurting you. Maybe that's the reason why things change. Again, this is my chidush right now. Maybe that's the reason why things change. When in the days of the Gemara, it was easier to find someone that loves everyone genuinely. Today, everybody has a little bit of a 
safek of whether they like you or not. Usually people have a reason of why they like you. They like you because you have money. They like you because you could help them. They like you maybe you could give them a job. They like you because you are this or you are that. People have a, uh, you know, a little bit of a bias of why they like certain people. And the way you find out who likes you and who, not, who doesn't, tell them that you're going through a hard time. See how many of them continue to pick up the phone. Mechalel Shabbat that does a blessing, his blessing is considered to'avat Hashem. Why? Why did you do it quietly? Because the guy who did the blessing on the bread, mm-hmm. he's supposed to go to everyone after the Jewish, right? Yes. And I know that he's not Shalom Shabbat. Well, today's tradition is not for anyone to, uh, they usually don't do it. Like, I, I mean, I do it in my house, whoever comes to my house, for example, and eats at my house, I read the Bechat Amazon for everyone, uh, out loud. Uh, but in most places that I've been in, in general, houses or different places, uh, I haven't really seen that very often. It exists, there are places that do it, it's just not common. Usually, today's age, most people read their own Bechat Amazon to themselves, with the exception of the beginning. Somebody says the first one or two verses out loud, uh, and then everybody reads it to themselves quietly. So, him... Blessing uh, for anybody else, he can't take out anything because is is uh, um, someone that goes. King uh, Solomon said, "Someone that goes against the Torah, gam Even his prayer is considered disgusting. So it's not only that he doesn't help anybody and take them out of the blessing; his prayer is considered disgusting in Shemaim. This is a very serious problem that a lot of people have a problem with. Meaning, people don't like to hear this stuff. No, no, Hashem will always accept my prayer. Okay. You know. No, if the people are righteous, if the person keeps Shabbat, keeps mitzvot, he has Yirat Shamayim, he's a decent person, then yeah, if he does Kiddush, you're in his house or something like that, yes, yeah, no problem. It's no problem at all. You don't have to do your own Kiddush. Uh, unless you're Machmir, uh, which I don't suggest being a Machmir until you are very, very comfortable with all of the mitzvot. So until you get comfortable with all of the mitzvot, don't be a machmir in anything. Nothing. Zero. Not even one thing. There's anything that you do chumra is not going to uh, help you at all. It's, uh, it could hurt you more than help you. Mechale Shabbat? Someone's Mechale Shabbat is not part of a minyan. If he says Kaddish, you're not allowed to say Amen. He's considered an idol worshiper. Someone's a Mechalel Shabbat is considered the same thing as an idol worshiper. His Judaism is on suspension. It's violating Shabbat according to the Shulchan Aruch, the Zohar, the Gemara, the five books of Moses, pretty much every single book that was ever written about Shabbat before the, this existing generation talks very, very strongly against Chilul Shabbat to such an extent that when someone is a Mechalel Shabbat, they're not only not considered a uh, part of a Minyan, but if they say Kaddish, you're not allowed to say Amen. There's a machloket of whether you're allowed to, they're even, uh, you're allowed to even say Kaddish on them. There is a, uh, a very big problem with the, uh, the fact that uh, if they touch your wine, if someone's a Mechalel Shabbat and they touch your wine, you're not allowed to drink it. 
Uh, if it's uh, yeah, if it's not a mevushal uh, uh, wine, uh, which means it's usually higher end wines, like ten, you know, five dollar wines are usually mevushal. They're like mitzanavim, they're like grape juice. But the ones that are like fifteen dollars plus usually are not mevushal. They're not cooked wines. So if he touches that wine and the wine bottle is open, you throw it in the garbage. You're not even allowed to give it to a goy. So it's a very very uh, serious serious problem. And the reason why it's such a serious problem, and it says a lot worse things than what I'm saying to you, even though this is worse, this is bad enough. The reason why it's such a serious problem is because Hashem said in the beginning of the Torah that He created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So in essence, Chazal says that when you keep Shabbat, you're testifying, you're acting as a witness. I know... Hashem created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Meaning He stopped creating on the seventh day. When you violate Shabbat, you say, no, Hashem didn't create in six days. Maybe He created in six months, maybe six thousand years, maybe six billion years, maybe He didn't even create, maybe there's nothing. In essence, you're saying you're an atheist when you, when you violate Shabbat. Even though there are many, many really, really nice people in the world, many of them that I know, that violate Shabbat, and they're not atheists. They believe in Hashem. They just don't know. They just don't know how bad it is to violate Shabbat. And the problem is, is that now that we're at the end of times, Hashem is making Torah very accessible, and very easy to reach, very easy to get to, because He's eliminating all the excuses. Meaning no one can get to the day of Mashiach, or their own personal judgment day when they go up to Shemayim and say, no, no, I didn't know. What do you mean you didn't know? You knew you were Jewish? Yes. You lived in New York? Yes. You lived in Florida? Yes. You lived in Colorado? Yes. You lived in a Jewish community or somewhere near a Jewish community? Yes. So you knew you were a Jew? Yes. You didn't live in uh, Algeria in the middle of something? No. You didn't live in uh, Moscow under communism? No. You didn't live in... Uh... That's some person is doing so like Adam Does it... Does it uh... Bezat Hashem, we're going to be coming out with a Shabbat movie. We have it already ready. We have a Shabbat movie. God bless him. Sonny made already the movie. And we're just finalizing the last few steps as far as the uh, the rights, the copyrights. All of these movies are mamash mesirut nefesh, each one of them to make. Uh, there's a lot of things that go into it. It looks like once it's done, when people see it, it looks like it was easy work, but it's mamash, a lot of things, a lot of different pieces that go into it. The Shabbat movie that we came out with, uh, we're kind of going to be coming out with, it's about 17 minutes, which answers all of your questions. Uh, but the end, simple answer to your question is that Chazal answered it. Someone asked the same question you had. What if somebody found a way to keep the 613 mitzvot? Right? 613 mitzvot in the Torah. Now we can't, no one can fulfill all of them, because not everyone is a Kohen, only Kohen can do certain mitzvot. Not everyone lives in Israel, you can only do certain mitzvot in Israel. We don't have a Bet Mikdash. no one can do those mitzvot in a Bet Mikdash. no one can do Kobanot. But let's say, let's hypothetically say, someone found a way to beat the system and keep 612 mitzvot out of 613. Already sounds good, right? But the one he doesn't keep is Shabbat. So Chazal says, what does that mean? Is that okay? He kept 612. Quantity. Tzaddik. He's even doing more than he has to. Okay, so he drives on Shabbat. Big deal. Chazal says, 612 are worth absolutely zero. Without Shabbat, there's no Judaism. Without Shabbat, there's no Tshuva. Without Shabbat, it's all meaningless. 
Why? Because Shabbat is testifying you believe in God. You don't believe in God? What are you doing the mitzvot for? You're doing because you like it. You're doing because you enjoy it. You're doing because you're easy. You don't believe in God. Because if you really believed in God, why would Shabbat be so difficult for you? It's a vacation once a week. Next. I was listening to Rav Mizrahi. I said that there was a Rav who wasn't picking any tzedakah, any money from anyone who was not picking Shabbat. Many of them still, yeah. There are, Hashem, there was many in the past that don't take tzedakah from a Mechalel Shabbat. I know at least one that doesn't today, uh, which is Rav Ephraim. Rav Ephraim does not take tzedakah from anybody that's a Mechalel Shabbat. Uh, as a matter of fact, he doesn't take tzedakah from most people. Uh, he has to know who this person is. Uh, and uh, he only takes it if under certain conditions. Even though his whole life is based on Staka, he doesn't have like a regular job, he doesn't care. He believes in Hashem 100%, and if somebody's a Mechal Shabbat, there's a 0% chance of him accepting that Staka. And Baruch Hashem, there are many people uh, in the past generations that were like him. Today there's less, but they still exist. And the reason is, is because when someone is a Mechal Shabbat, it's a problem to take tzedakah with him because maybe he made the money on Shabbat. So in essence, by you taking tzedakah from him, you're enabling him to work. You're telling him, yeah, continue to work, so you continue giving me tzedakah. Okay, but I'm going to work on Shabbat. Good, good, so mitzvah, mitzvah. No, it's not mitzvah, my friend. So that's what happens with all of these bet knesets where the rabbi just sits there like he's a uh, pantomime. He doesn't say anything. He just tells, you know, tells people to come on Shabbat knowing that half the keilah is driving on Shabbat. He doesn't say anything. He's going to have a worse genom than all of them. Source, Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 54. Or Gemara Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 17. Or Gemara Sanhedrin, page 90 to 98. Or Gemara I mentioned to you sources from here to next week. It's one of the major six, one of the major mitzvot out of the 613. You cannot see another Jew sinning against the Torah, not against a rabbinical sin. If it's a rabbinical sin, you know someone's going to make a rabbinical sin. Let's say, for example, he's not going to wash their hands. And you know that if you tell him, he's not going to listen. Don't tell him anything. Gemara says, don't tell him. If you know he's not going to listen, and it's only a rabbinical mitzvah, don't tell him. But if it's a Yisur Doraita, if it's a mitzvah from the Torah, and you see him violating it, you have no option. You have to tell him. You have to find a way to tell him. But don't necessarily embarrass him in the middle of the street. Hey, you hasha, you hasha. Don't do that. Don't start throwing rocks at people. Like some of these idiots that throw rocks at people that drive on Shabbat. No, that's not what the Torah says. Torah, daket, Torah, daket, noam. There's a nice way to do it. Tell the guy, my brother, I love you. You're my brother. Yeah, but you don't know me. Yes, I know, but you're part of my nation. You are the son of God. You are the daughter of God, right? Yes. Okay, so just because you're the son or daughter of God, that makes me automatically love you. But because I love you, i got to tell you something. What are you going to tell me? What? What are you going to tell me? Let me tell you. Secret, secret. Let me tell you. No one's going to tell you this. I didn't know no one's going to tell me this because I know for sure they didn't tell you this. How do you know they didn't tell me? I know for sure they didn't tell you. I know they didn't tell me. That means no one told you you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat because anyone that knows what happens to somebody that drives on Shabbat has to be insane to drive on Shabbat. You have to be insane. You have to be a mash meshuga to drive on Shabbat if you know what it means to drive on Shabbat. If you know what each time you drive on Shabbat, how many years in Gehenna a person will spend for driving on Shabbat. 
Gemara says there's only a few people that don't come out of Gehenom. There's Gehenom, there's seven parts. Seven parts of Gehenom. First six parts, one is worse than the other, but they all end at some point. The seventh one never ends. Never ends. To such an extent, Gemara Rosh Hashanah, page 17 says, even when the Mashiach comes, and there's the culmination of the world, and Hashem ends this world, and He even ends Gehenom, that section never ends. Seventh level of hell never ends. One of the people that goes there is someone that does Chilul Hashem. Someone desecrates Hashem's name. It's obvious. Another person also, Hashem Echem, Mechal Shabbat. Mechal Shabbat. You understand? You understand what this means? Someone can't just go up to Shabbat and say, No, no, I didn't know. What do you mean you didn't know? You lived in, uh, in the woods? You lived in the mountains? Where'd you live? You lived in the world, right? You had people, you had internet. You knew you were a Jew. Yes, if you knew you were a Jew, how did you not know? Now, unfortunately, some people go to Keilot, go to Beknesset, and for 20 years, and no one ever tells them. So the rabbi is going to get a bigger punishment than he is, but still, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card. There's not like, oh yeah, just because you didn't know, because the rabbi never told you, it's okay, you're going to Gan Eden. I've never, I haven't found a source for that. If anybody can find me a source for that, I'll start pitching it more than I did stocks. Right, no, no, you don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Like, you know, nobody knows anything. You guys are all tzaddikim, you're all nevonim. What do I care? People think that I say these things, or Rav Mizrahi says these things, or the few people that are actually have Yirat Shamayim in the world say these things because we enjoy it. It's Mama's a horror show to know, to, to say this stuff. And the reason why is because I know it's real. Some people listen to this stuff, they like, yeah, maybe it's real, maybe it's not, maybe it's, you know, maybe he believes it, maybe not. People don't understand. The more you know, the more scared you become. So the fact that when I see people that are decent people, decent, nice people, they're not murderers, they're not rapists, they're not like really bad people, they're decent people. And I see them making certain sins that are destroying their neshama. Destroying their ulama They're destroying it. And I know, because I read a little bit, or I learned a little bit, somewhere at some point, I know what happens. It's a nightmare for me. Because it's like the guy has cancer, I have the cure, and I tell him, take the cure. Here's the cure. No, no, I don't want it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to lose some weight. No, no, no. This is a cure. It's not for weight. The cure, no, no. I, I don't take medicine. No, no. But it's a cure because you have a disease. No, no, no. I'm okay. I'm okay. What do you... Like you try to give the guy medicine to cure him and he refuses to take it. So for me, it's a nightmare. Why? Because I know that if he doesn't take this medicine, he's doomed. So, that's the thing. It's, I know it's a big test for everyone. I know it's not easy. But listen, if somebody like me can do tshuva, no one else has an excuse. I had more excuses than this entire room put together. If you want reasons to stay in the olama shekel, I had plenty of money. All the money that everybody wants, I had it. I'm the guy that had it. So all those things, I had. Then what? Uh, what? A, uh, reasons to not like religion? Had it. I had rabbis coming to my office on a weekly basis lying to me. 
all the reasons in the world to hate the religion. Reasons to be upset at Hashem? Seven years of Gainom. Seven years of fighting for my life. Seven years of fighting for a health battle. And all the reasons in the world to be upset at Hashem. If, I, if you don't realize what's actually happening out there and he's doing you a favor. <clears throat> what other excuses do you have? I don't know. Okay, I didn't know either. There's no real, there's no real excuse not to do it. There's no excuse not to do tshuva. And that's the thing. So, I mean, if somebody looks at the news, they see that there's a war going on. They see that Korea wants to blow up the world if they had the opportunity to do it. Iran wants to do the same. America also wants to do the same. Russia also wants to do the same. Just, everybody's like playing chicken now. Who's going to press the trigger? No, you'll do it? No, no, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't work. No one knows where that missile was supposed to go, by the way. There was a couple of missiles that they launched, and they failed. No one actually knows where they were supposed to go. It could have just gone into the atmosphere and blow up. could have gone to America. could have gone to somewhere else. No one actually knows what was even in them. So they could have literally made it like a show. Okay, we're pressing the trigger in front of the whole world, in your face. Goodbye, America. That could have been their intention. No one knows because it didn't make it. Because Hashem said, not, it's not time yet. But you know that if they had the ability, they do it. Simple. If Israel didn't play so scared of America and the opinion of the world in the United Nations, they'd also do it. Israel has plenty of atomic bombs. You launch a couple of them, you destroy the entire Middle East, you're alone. You're an island now. Two seconds, they could destroy the entire Middle East. But they're scared of America, they're scared of everybody's opinion, and they're Jews at the end of it, so, Baruch Hashem, they have Rachmanut, they have uh, mercy. We're not animals, we're not here to kill. You're never going to see Israelis, you're never going to see Jews attacking. Why? Because Hashem gave us certain midot, we're human beings. We're not here to fight, we're here to live in a peaceful world and be a light to the nations. But, some of the government members are not exactly human beings. They want to fight, but, they're worried about this world too much. They're worried about what America thinks. They're worried about what everybody else thinks. Point being is that Hashem is putting us in a situation. We have to make a choice. We have to make a choice. And it's not going to be a choice where that's going to be easy. It's going to be a big test. You're going to have to decide. Do I go to the club? Do I go to the Knesset? Do I go with the Goya? Do I go with the Jew? Do I stay alone? Or do I stay intermarried? Do I... Do good, do I do bad? Do I continue stealing from my customers because no one's catching me yet? Or do I start an honest business even though my panasa is going to go down 80%? You're going to have serious choices to make. It's not going to be easy. If it's been easy so far, it's because Hashem knows you're not at a level to make that big choice. But it's going to get harder. It's going to get more difficult. It's going to get ugly. You stick to Hashem, you have nothing to worry about. Where does it start with? Basic parts of life. Basic part of life, something you do every day. What do you do? You eat every day. Rabbi Shimon Yochai tells you, don't worry about Lag Baomer. Worry about your Suda. Lag Baomer, great. That's for everybody else. That's for the, everybody else that wants to party. God bless them. You want to do tshuva? You want to be saved? Mashiach comes. You want to be holy? Start with your meal every day. Do Birkat Amazon. Say some divrei Torah. 
Don't come up with a safek excuse of why you're allowed to do it or not allowed to do it. Is this enough Torah? Is this not enough Torah? If you're relying on the fact that my machronim chovah is going to be your divret Torah, don't be surprised if the Mashiach doesn't even want to look at you. Five years you said my machronim Torah is your divret Torah every day. You want the Mashiach to save you? You're serious? It's Five years you're doing tshuva, all, all the old Torah that you said the whole day is my machronim chovah. That's it. That's your old Torah. Or Birkat Amazon. Birkat Amazon, that is your Torah for the entire day. No, no, I learned Torah today. What would you do? I did Birkat Amazon eight times. It just means you're fat and you eat too much. It doesn't mean that you're a tzaddik. Say some divrei Torah. Open the book. Read it. Watch a shiur. Put some new wisdom into your neshama. Get ready. Get ready. I'm telling you the things that I tell myself. Because if I don't tell myself, who's going to tell me? If I'm not for myself, who's for me? No more questions. Finished? You guys already know the entire Torah after a couple of hours? Baruch Hashem. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.